Wall Street and biotechnology companies have been very excited about this idea. And what essentially it is, is trying to pack the cells in the body in order to make them into drug factories. Welcome to The Daily Wrap-Up, a concise show dedicated to bringing you the most relevant independent news as we see it from the last 24 hours. Friday, December 29th, 2023. Thank you for joining me today. I think it's an important day in regard to the uh, genocide convention that was initiated today in protection of Gaza against Israel, however you want to frame it. And I think it's a very important step that I think everyone has seen coming and is now going to highlight a lot more the reality behind a lot of positions that you may not already see. And I think it's important. A lot of people immersed in the diplomatic side of this have been talking about how everyone's well aware that it's not really an issue of whether they believe this can pass, but rather that if it does, it's guaranteed to, or rather that in an honest sense that this, everything you need for this to be clear is already present and people that are invested in the interest of Israel's state, the state, the Zionist state, are concerned about that actually becoming that transparent. Now, we'll have to see where this goes from today. I, I just invited um, uh, Sam Husseini on to discuss this as he's been kind of the lone voice. I know there's plenty more than him, but the standout voice in this that have been highlighting why nobody has been calling for the Geneva, uh, excuse me, the genocide convention, or rather uh, trying to initiate it, despite pointing out and calling genocide. Now, on, on a quick note before we get started, I'm even realizing right now that my, I'm, if I look stiff today or I'm, I react in a funny way, if you see me in the few times that we you can see me on the show today, my neck is hurting. I slept on it funny, and so just in case I look funny, I wanted to, I wasn't going to say anything about it, but now I'm noticing I feel very stiff today. So unfortunately, that's been bugging me all day. But it, other than the discussion of the genocide in Gaza, and we, we're going to follow up on that today to start with some important follow-ups. And try to do that in quick succession because I wanted to focus actually today on a, a different topic. Something that I have been, ta- I've talked about in the past, that I've researched in the past, but something that came across my desk, as it were, t- today and, and the last couple of days. And I was discussing how this connects with the conversation around COVID 19, the nanotechnology, the magno, magne- magnetogenetics all the different, le- the, the deeper parts of what the I, th- I argue the mRNA platform and the technology revolves around and how neurotechnology, neuroweapons ha- plays into this. Now, this is not new by any stretch of the imagination, not in the sense of, you know, some of the newer things we're talking about. And even in that sense, as we are learning the mRNA and the, these things aren't new either, we're just being shown them for the first time. But where this plays into the larger agenda and the parts I've seen throughout this that already connect to this. And I have there's a video that I want to play today that is unnerving. Kind of the stuff that really kind of gives you nightmares about what not just what might be coming, but what has been around for a long time that we're only just aware of and what has been happening this entire time. And this is the conversation I've touched on in the past around smart dust the nanotechnology side of it and what that really can do. And there is an overlap to this, but this gets into the kind of conversation what I think most Americans at the very least are aware of in, in regard to the conversation on Havana, the sonic weapon conversation and how these kind of things can affect your, your 
cognate cognition. And, but that's a really, I don't want to say clumsy, but very surface level and obvious version of what this neuro technology, neuro weapon avenue is capable of. And this gets into manipulating the way you feel about things, your attitude, the way you act in your daily life on a macro and, and micro scale. I did that backward, but on an individual, but also on a, on a nationwide scale, a statewide scale, a countywide scale, the kind of stuff. And we're going to go into a video from a, a, an individual that works with the Pentagon, with NATO, talking about how very real these things are, which tell me at the very least that they want you to see them at some level but how they're very, very real. At least they're project projecting them as real and what this really means and whether or not we've already seen this and how that ties in with the COVID-19 illusion and why I think this is, as I've been saying for a while, and not a unique opinion, is a lot bigger than just a medical aspect, a vaccine or rather an injection and how big this really does get and how concerning it is as it overlaps with even the foreign policy side of this testing of weapons and different technologies in places like Gaza. So we're going to start today with a follow up on what's been going on in, in the Gaza Strip and, and the larger agendas around it. So you don't miss some of the developments like the initiation or invoking of the genocide convention, another investigation by Haaretz that highlights what I I don't know how you can dismiss this as anything other than the Hannibal Directive. We'll go through it. One of the three hostages that were shot by the ADF turns out they were shot 15 minutes later than the first two. Now we'll go through it. We can talk about it. We'll try to do it in a shorter part to start today, so we can go over the neurotech part, which I think is going to, which deserves a lot more discussion and and lengthy overview of the whole topic. But we'll start with something that I wanted to make sure you guys are still talking about that we will be covering a lot more coming up at the beginning of, or rather the end of next month. And that's Derek going to cover the culmination of the fluoride trial, as we hope it is ultimately the culmination. But the point is it's been, it's culminated many times already. It's been pushed away because the evidence around how dangerous fluoride is, if you don't already know, is, is already there. It's present. The studies have been done. The, the toxicology report has been presented. They've just been dragging their feet for, well, I think, five years now. Even the information has leaked out that shows you. Their own study shows that it's hurting your children. They still make a point to hold it back. So we want to cover what we believe will be this culmination, showing you where they officially announced that and probably still get pushed back on. But I'll include this Substack post where you can see uh, Derek's video about it and where you can donate if you'd like to support our work in that regard. On that note, I'd like to make... Uh, to make an announcement in general about how I will be taking over the Substack in general, the T-Lab Substack, as uh, Scott Armstrong will be moving on to bigger and better things. I wish him nothing but the best. So that'll be something I, I plan to lean into a little bit more in regard to personal articles for myself, and as well as just more work that, you know, the more that we can put through Substack in general and, you know, kind of just grow all these different avenues, I'm feeling very motivated lately in regard to how we can grow what we're doing. And so I want to make sure we that I personally try to do more in that regard. Cause I miss writing. I miss doing the individual articles. I used to do a lot, actually, as you know, this work takes a lot, a lot of time and the organization and the writing of it is almost in many cases, even more oftentimes as ask Whitney, she'll tell you, but uh, what we're going to get into in regard to the starting of this conversation in the first segment. Anyway, I want to make sure you don't miss Robert's outstanding article. I was going to have him on today. I think there was a little bit of a, a mishap in the timing, but I've got a problem having a, have him on, the next couple of days, we used to do a regular show, he and I, but we got more invested in his writing on the, and, and follow up on the ground. But I, I do miss 
having the conversations with him because he's such an interesting and insightful and compassionate person. And in case you don't remember, we already talked about this. I don't, I haven't talked about it since because I, I really was trying to be extra sensitive about this for his family and their privacy, but he, he wanted you guys to know this from his own personal extended family alone. They've lost over 120 people and that's extended family, but that's still family. It's his wife and their family that are in Gaza guys, 120 of his family members, not Hamas as much as Israel and the rest of the groups around it would love to tell you that Robert Inlakash has lost 120 family members in Gaza. I mean, I just unbelievable that people can act like this is not exactly what it looks like. He entitled this Yemen, Gaza and Lebanon all show that murdering children begets blowback. It's a very personal, important overview of the whole story and how we all know anybody paying attention to their history, even people that support Israel and what's going on in Gaza right now are, interestingly enough, able to stand back and acknowledge other aspects of U.S. foreign policy that seem to have deliberately done these kind of things, but acting like today, it's completely impossible. It's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I'm going to connect with him soon so we can go through a lot of these things. A lot of what I put off for tomorrow that I would like his opinion on for you guys, we could talk about together. But let's start today on this segment with the point that I think is very important. And of all groups, South Africa invokes the Article 9 of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, instituting proceedings against Israel and their apartheid state at the International Criminal of Justice, and requesting the court to indicate uh, provisional measures, basically like doing something to stop the murder now as this process goes forward, right? But even in any case, none of this is going to stop, in my opinion, what Israel's doing because they've already got the green light, tacit or otherwise, from the U.S. government, and they don't care about the United Nations as much as they try to make you think they do. They ignore it in every possible turn that, it, that goes against their agenda and actively try to call on it any place it benefits them while actively calling them Hamas, which I guess just somehow is not the stupidest thing in the world. And that's not to say I support or have any positive feelings about the United Nations. This is a group that I actively point out is a large problem in the, in the essence of what the larger body is, not the individual moving parts, not necessarily. As I point out, there are occasionally entities within this moving multifaceted entity that, like I pointed out with Bolivia and Evo Morales, when he got, you know, clearly he got regime changed, as we called out. The point was he was calling out what the U.S. were doing in front of the United Nations. So it's not all encompassing, but the body itself, I do not believe has the ultimate best interest of the people of the world at heart. That's my personal opinion. That's not to say that because you know, it's it's like saying that if the as the joke Caitlin Johnstone points out when you know the CNN comes on and tells you it's going to rain that day. Well, it's probably going to rain. Doesn't mean you trust everything else they're going to say, right? Sometimes those things actually just align, and usually because they want you to believe they tell the truth. So in some cases they do. My point in this is that just because this is the UN or any group that you typically have a lot of distrust for, you should question what they're doing. But that does not inherently mean this is not true, or that this is fake, or that the UN is Hamas. These are clumsy arguments that are meant to drive you away from acknowledging what is the most obvious thing in the world. So that's why we found ourselves in a position where you basically have everybody across party lines, weirdly enough, sort of like the COVID-19 illusion. Think about that. Who are aware that what is going on? The genocide. The horrible things that Israel ha have been doing for 75 years and are currently still doing in Gaza, as well as the things that Hamas did in October 7th that were crimes. Those also exist in this conversation. But you can see how it's kind of insulting to pretend like this one event somehow overshadows 75 years of brutal apartheid occupation, 
rape, murder, theft, human shields, everything they they point out anybody else doing. So now we have to see what happens in regard to what they do in response. Sort of like when I pointed out they voted for a ceasefire after the veto. I think it was a resolution, not resolution, but it was Article 7. I don't know. I'm going to miss. I think it was 377, but which allowed them to continue back around and do another vote where the veto would not stop it. They voted for a ceasefire, a complete exchange of all hostages, which both the Israel and the United States voted no for. In case you didn't hear that properly, it was a vote to allow all hostages to be exchanged, and they both voted no because they didn't get what they wanted, which was a continuation of the war. And you could even argue that that means the removal of Hamas. Doesn't matter. Ultimately, it means they chose their war over getting their people back, even if you believe the people were number two. Still shows you that they care more about their agenda than they do about the very people they claim the agenda is for. It's just childish logic. You could see right through it if you care. It's obviously contradictory when you really think about what they're doing, especially since you have people coming home saying they were trying to kill us. The IDF bombs killed people next to us. Hostages. We saw it. I was terrified. They were going to kill us. We were cowering together with the Hamas. I believe they actually called them terrorists in that statement. But the point was, even then, they were still saying that we were hiding with them because we were all afraid of the idea of bombs. Nobody, honest, is trying to pretend like what they dealt with over there was some kind of flowery fun time with all their friends. It was terrible. They were kidnapped. It was scary. But they also were fed. They also were treated kindly, as many of them have told you, and have come back with no real indication that they were mistreated. That does not mean they weren't. Simply comparing that to people coming back emaciated with cuts all over, bruises all over their body, many of them just dead in prison. We're talking about what happens to Palestinians in Israeli prisons per the United Nations, per Amnesty, per Human Rights Watch, per Bet Selim, anybody you're listening to right now, but that's all fake news because they're Hamas and human shields. Right? You get it? You see how stupid this becomes? Now, here's what Lawrence pointed out. Or rather, just citing the the statement, South Africa filed today an application in, in instituting proceedings against Israel before the ICJ in the Criminal uh, International Ju- uh, Court of Justice. Excuse me, the principal judicial organ of the United Nations concerning alleged violations by Israel, which is even frustrating that they write alleged when it's these are provable facts. You can dispute whether they were justified, right? Where oh well, Hamas was there, so we were allowed to kill four hundred people who weren't bad people or whatever, terrorists that we're framing them as. But you can't pretend it didn't happen. It's not an alleged violation. They are violations. They're arguing simply that here's why that violation was justified. And that's the way to frame this, because they're literally saying, yes, we bombed a hospital, but it was because Hamas was there. So a bombing a hospital is a violation in wartime. They're claiming it's not a violation in this context because Hamas, but it is still generally considered that. So yet they still they still frame it as alleged violations Despite amnesty investigation saying 100% verifiable fact on the ground, they murdered families or 972 magazines citing Israeli officials saying or IDF intelligence that we bring down buildings just to bring down buildings or on and on and on. The thousands of examples going back a century. And it's obligations under the Convention on Prevention of Punishment and the Crime of Genocide in relation to Palestinians in Gaza. This is a statement by International Court of Justice, The Hague. In the Netherlands. Now, here is the Guardian. Interesting update on this. Israel Gaza War Live. It says Israel rejects genocide case, shocking enough, as baseless. Of course they do. I mean, that's a meaningless statement. Anybody who is being accused of genocide is, I mean, can you remember a time when they stand up and go, yeah, you got me. 
You got us. That's us. We're genocide. Take us away. That just doesn't happen, guys. So they're always going to say fake news. And everyone who believes them is going to say fake news. And people that are invested in their agenda is going to say the same thing. But it, doesn't, it also doesn't prove, therefore, that it did happen. But the crazy thing is that's already been done. <laughs> They've already said we're doing it. They've already proved they're doing it. They've already videotaped themselves doing it. They've already shown you they're doing it. And they just go, that's not that. And again, people that want to believe them go, that's fake news. Same thing. But it says UN humanitarian chief strongly condemns aid convoy attack. And this is what's so interesting to me. These are the stories that get fall by the wayside because so many people don't want to engage with these conversations. They just bombed a UN convoy. And the UN speaks up and says, whoa, that's a problem. This is, this is a UN relief chief, Martin Griffin, saying, I strongly condemn an incident yesterday. This is on the 28th in which an aid convoy, the very aid convoys, they keep saying, Hamas, Hamas, they're hijacking. They're the ones stopping it. They won't let them come through. Or let's remember in the very beginning when they were going, oh, it was actually our really embarrassing Matt Miller who argued that it was that there was Hamas stopping it from coming through. And then we were all like, that's not possible, seeing as how Israel controls it. Matt Lee pushed back and he goes, oh, wait, no, it was actually that there was not enough what was the argument they said? That they were, there was not enough people around to bring it through? And they, he kind of wish-washed back and forth. Ultimately, the reality is Israel controls the borders involved in, with Egypt, but the point is undeniable. It's been acknowledged by every human rights group, the United Nations. They have This is an open-air prison. That's why it's an apartheid. All they're doing is just pretending that's not true. I guess that's all they got. But he says the convoy was clearly marked and its motive movements were coordinated with the parties. So here's what he's saying. Obviously, it was marked as a UN vehicle, or rather just marked as an aid vehicle, and they were aware of that. On top of that, they told them they were coming. They responded and said, yes, we know you're coming. That's, the, that's how this works. This is like saying, we here's a hospital we're using for UN aid. We're letting you know that we're here. That means it's off limits. And they go, yes, we know you're there. And then they bomb the hospital, which has happened more than once. And the UN has been screaming about it. Safe areas are being bombed. They're bombing UN refugee camps. They're bombing UN hospitals, UN schools. And all they do is go Hamas. Nobody's proven that. It's a huge allegation of a group that I'm not, I'm not supporting. But think about the allegation of suggesting that not just the UN Palestinian Refugee Agency, but that UN from the top down are literally covering for a 30,000 strong terrorist organization in the Gaza Strip. Like, ask yourself why that even logically makes sense. What's the inside? What's the benefit here? I'm not saying it's not true. I, I don't think it's true. My point is that it needs, I mean, just stating these kind of arguments with literally nothing to back them up, when you have a mountain of evidence showing you that Israel literally funded the very group they're pretending they're, I mean, you see how backward this gets. Everybody sees through this. And he says, attacks on humanitarian workers are unlawful. The conflict must stop. Oh, just refreshed on me. As they tend to do, as I've shown you so many times. That was it, really. Oh, here it is. So it's saying. Oh, I think I have got right here. Yeah, I've got him right there. I'll come back to that in one second. So the point is what's interesting is that they are literally bombing UN convoys. They're not trying to say, oh, well, they were Hamas. They just kind of let that go. In a general sense, they're saying UN is covering for Hamas or as I guess I'll show you now, or saying, as Martin Griffin points out, you think getting aid into Gaza is easy? Think again. And he just lists off all the problems. 
confusion, long queues, growing list of rejected items. This is all from Israel, mind you. A crossing point meant for pedestrians, not trucks. They're using the wrong crossing point. Another crossing point where trucks have been blocked by desperate, hungry communities. A destroyed commercial sector. Constant bombardment, Israel bombing. Poor communication, damaged roads, Israel, all Israel. A traumatized and exhausted population crammed into a smaller and smaller sliver of land. Shelters which have ex- have long ex- ex- excuse me exceeded their full capacity, if they're not being bombed. Aid workers themselves displaced and killed. This is an impossible situation for the people of Gaza and for those trying to help them. The fighting must stop. So here's what he says. That's a long list without mentioning Hamas hijacking aid trucks. So this is what I keep showing you in regard to how embarrassingly clumsy their, their, their reactive propaganda is, right? So yesterday, this comes out and they go, oh, they, well, this, this is today, but this came from yesterday. No, it didn't go too far. No, that's right. What? You guys just saw me scroll down to that. Did it just remove it? I literally just looked at it. Was it this one? Oh, it's right here. Okay. I guess that updated and then removed the bottom. So the point was this this post, or rather, excuse me, it's even just from earlier in the day. So my point is that this this oh I take I take it back. This is what this is this happened yesterday, right? So yesterday he posted this today, but yesterday they bombed an aid convoy. Which, by the way, it's happened many times. Even Egypt called them out repeatedly in the beginning, but people were far less open to hearing what they were doing in the beginning. So yesterday they do this. It gets called out all over yesterday. Martin Griffith, Griffith steps up today, earlier in the day, and calls it out. But so my point is, people were saying, you bombed an aid convoy. What do they do? They come out and say, Hamas is hijacking aid convoys. Not necessarily in response to the fact they bombed the convoy, but at the same time, because this post is about that. You see my point? So instead of propagandizing you for their narratives that are going to come, they're desperately trying to cover what they do by secondarily coming out with propaganda that they can't prove. Then literally says, UN officials, the UN relief chief he's claiming is just covering for Hamas. No, he's calling you out for bombing a UNA convoy full of aid that you know is going to go help the Palestinians that you don't want to happen. I just think that's incredible. And it, uh, EZO voice for Palestine points out, stop your lies. And this is important. I agree with all of this. He even, looks, he, he even overlooks the Israeli-Egyptian collaboration at the Gaza border, where an Israeli checkpoint on Egyptian soil severely delays aid. Oh, this actually, this whole, and this is a different point. No, this was, see, what I think what, either way, this point's what I wanted to, what I was going to point out. I'll read the whole thing. He says, where an Israeli checkpoint on Egyptian soil severely delays aid, causing truck backlogs for delay. I believe this is the same point, but I think I have the wrong one. There was another one where we were talking about the earlier points on this. But in any case, he goes on to simply point out that this contradiction, first of all, that obviously they're, if it was just Egypt's choice, I think he's insinuating that it wouldn't be delayed, but it's because of Israel checkpoints on Egyptian soil. That cause more like so as he pretends like oh, I'll play a clip for you next that Egypt are the one making these decisions. We know that's not true. And international bodies have already called that out. But he says this contradicts the notion of Israel aiding Gaza. They could permit aid through their own borders, but instead impose a bottleneck. This is a choice, guys. This stance makes the argument of Israeli support for Gaza implausible as they share a large border and could easily facilitate food and supplies. 
or allow UN assistance. Instead, Israel's actions contribute to the escalating crisis in Gaza, making life unbearable and hindering UN operations, which, by the way, is what the UN has been saying. But they just go, UN is a law, so shut up. And people who want to act like that's all you need. You can't be stupid enough to look at this and go, okay, they're making this happen and blaming it on everybody else. Or rather, that would be what you would acknowledge. And <laughs> I said that backwards. But it's the same as in the beginning when, and actually this same person, Mark Lamont, made a point about this saying, well, why don't you let them into your border? Why don't you let them into Israel? Aren't you the one saying that we're trying to protect them from Hamas? You can't play it both ways. Either you're trying to save the good Palestinians or you don't think there are any. Okay, so if you're trying to save the good ones, which is your whole narrative, then why don't you let them into the largest, most obvious choice? Well, because they don't want that. Because every single official that has spoken about this has said, there are no safe, they're all terrorists. We want to kill them all, take them all out. They're all human animals. Make it a parking lot over and over and over. So after they bomb aid aid trucks, they go, Hamas is hijacking them. It's as simple as that. And here is Mark Lamont pushing back on an Israeli official who is simply saying, Rather, he refuses to move past a point because he wants Lamont, bullies him into saying the same thing he's saying, even though the truth is we can prove Israel has control of this of every border of Gaza. It's an open-air prison. Israel controls what goes into Gaza and what comes out of Gaza. Israel controls the population registry. Israel controls the, 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 the flow of people and the flow of money. Israel controls Gaza by land, air, and sea. Is anything that I just said untrue? Yes. Which part? Everything that you said is not is not true. Israel does not control the population registry of, of, of Gaza? It's an easily proven fact. And he's just denying that. No. Israel doesn't control the flow of goods in and out of Gaza? Easily proven. No. Israel does not have any military presence on the border of, of Gaza. Between Israel and Gaza, but not between Gaza and Egypt. That's fund- it's, it's fundamentally false. I mean, ask yourself how that would even make sense. Are you really trying to pretend that you have a completely unprotected border just hoping that Egypt does your job for you? That's absurdly stupid. I'm sure Egypt has people on their side of the border. Israel has people on their side of the border. Or are they pretending that they allow Hamas to control the border with Egypt of Israel? I mean, guys, this is my point. These arguments are fundamentally flawed, and they don't care. It's easy to prove. They move through Egypt whenever they want. Whatever they want, they can bring. Okay, it's very easy. You take, a car, you take a car, you go through Rafa, you go to Cairo, and you take a plane, and you go to Europe. Okay, so you're, what you're arguing is that Gaza is its own country. That's the, the game they love to play. And so Hamas can just load up a car and go into Egypt. Okay, so let's say Hamas goes into Egypt through the border with what we all know is Israel. Not that it should be, but that's what it is. Not it's not Gaza. There's no Gaza. There's no there's no Gaza Air Force Navy. This is a function through Israel. And that's why every international body has made that clear. It is an occupied territory. So if they were to go through into Egypt, are you pretending that Israel would just allow the and and not take like the point is the responsibility would fall on the country from which they're coming from. That's the whole reality. There's you can look this up in regard to the international. I mean, like there's so many easy ways to prove this in regard to the UN, in regard to the way that they process the, the checkpoints through these crossings. It's obvious that Israel has always had control of this and continues to. And yet they just lie to you.
And even worse, the people that take these stories, the corporate media, and 99% of the people out there covering this, just let that fly. Or at least that's what it was, the way it was. Certainly not the way it is right now, not as much as it was before. Hopefully it's continuing. People are finding the courage to call out these lies. We don't stop them. Okay, sir, I think the international community will be surprised when they hear your words saying that Israel does not control Again, the, 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 the borders, the population registry, the electromagnetic sphere, every part of Gaza. Right. But that, that's up for the international community to decide when they watch this interview. Uh, let, let me take you. It's a fact on the ground. If somebody from Gaza wants to go out, they can go to Rafa if the Egyptians will let them. I don't know if the Egyptians will let them, but it's not in Israel anymore. Respectfully, sir, that's a straw man. No one is disputing that Egypt has control over the Rafa border. The right. border between Israel and Gaza is not controlled. Egypt and Gaza. I understand your, you've made your point, sir. Sir, you made your point. Sir, you've made your point. If you're saying that you're not willing to move on unless I agree with you that Israel doesn't control Gaza, then we can't continue because that's not a fact. And I won't and I, I refuse to acknowledge something that's not Israel true. Israel is not controlling Gaza. Uh, I, Israel is not you, You've made your point. Are you willing to move to another question or do you want to do you, are you willing to move to another question? Yes. Okay. okay. You just admit that Israel is not controlled Gaza, then you can wow. go on. Okay, well, I'm not... Because okay, okay, sir. Okay, sir. So, sir. Uh, understood. So, sir, I'm not going to admit that Israel doesn't control Gaza, so I'm going to thank you for your time. So, I appreciate you joining us up front. Have a good day. Good for him. Good for him. Look at, look at this. He literally says, you just have to admit what I want you to say, and then we can move on. Do you not see how that shows you? That might, that's probably just subconscious. Like, that's just what he's been used to in the engagement with his nonstop, you know, the whoever is spinning the lies about the Israel, the state of Israel. People cow, they, they, they will be cowed along by pressure. It's been constant. None of that has to do with some kind of a racial point that you people would love to make it into. And I mean, in that sense, anybody out there lying about this topic, people just love to wink, wink. Here's what they mean. It's just, it's hilarious how the most benign terms become whatever people want them to mean in the minute of a, of a, the fervor of a topic, right? Now, the point of all of this is that ultimately we're talking about the initiation, the invoking of the genocide convention while they're literally bombing UN convoys full of aid for the people that they claim they're trying to protect. Like, I think they're very aware that they are going to jail if this ever gets out of their hands. Like if they, if the US government, let's say, allows this to become if they see any level of accountability. And this is and this is exactly why I think they're so aggressively harping on the UN because for whatever reason there are people within this entity that have been actively calling this out. Here's what the UN news recently said. Children, women, young men, old men and women, um people bleeding out. I, I, at the same time yesterday at Al-Aqsa, I saw a woman who had multiple gunshot wounds. An attempt was made to refer her and she was referred back because she was bleeding so heavily. So, I mean, it, it, there, there's, there's blood everywhere in these hospitals at the moment. We're seeing almost only trauma cases come through the door and at a scale that's quite difficult to believe. Um, it, it's, it's a bloodbath, as we, as we said before, it's carnage. Wow. I mean, it's just those terms in general. And I, my point was, as he says, we're only seeing trauma cases through the door. It's just, there's just no way to pretend any longer after. Just think about how long this has been going on. And they're still calling this defending themselves. They stopped using that term because it's ridiculous at this point, but they still make that insinuation. 
There's just no way to pretend ever, but any longer that this was only about Hamas. It's we're long past that point. This is now and always was about ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in general. By the way, and I, as I say right there, I say this assuming that you've somehow managed to miss the repeated, explicit statements by numerous Israeli officials to that exact effect. That's how crazy this is, how obvious this is. Now, here is yet another example of somebody who is speaking up simply saying that we are not the priority of the Israeli government, says another release captive from Gaza. She's also pointing out the random targeting of Israeli strikes on homes nearby where they were staying. Now, this in Hebrew, you can listen to it for yourself. It's just to bring up the point. There are, I mean, every single one of these people that have come back that I've seen speak for themselves. That's important. Have said they were kind to me. They treated me. They gave us feminine hygiene. They let us pray together. Everything. None of which is supposed to argue that they were happy, that they were enjoying what was happening. Like, that's ridiculous. I don't think anybody honest is making that statement. They're just simply pointing out that they were not treated the way that they expected. And as Mohammed Al-Safin points out in response to Jeremy Scahill, Scahill saying, Israel killed at least 70 people in Gaza. Now, this is, this is not him saying it. This is from Times of Israel. 70 people in the Magazi refugee camp in a Christmas Eve bombing massacre. Nothing new. Happens every year. Only now we're focusing on it, right? And this is just one example of many different bombings that took place on both Christmas Eve and Christmas. Now it claims the deaths were, of course, a result of using the wrong munition. Quote, the IDF regrets the harm to those who were uninvolved and is working to learn lessons from the incident. My God, you know what I think that truly is? Deciding one day to go, you know what? Let's just pretend we made a mistake here so they think we're actually being honest about this. Guys, you don't need these lies to understand that they are murdering people. It's come out every which way. People inside the government speaking to the international community about how they want to kill all these people, how the children of Gaza brought this upon themselves, how, I mean, over and over and over, referencing biblical passages of genocide, literally citing Israeli IDF administer, uh, intelligence saying, we're murdering people. We're using the excuse. We're bringing buildings down just to bring down buildings. That we, this is a mass assassination factory. I mean, or Haaretz articles admitting they shot their own people or, I mean, just never ending. But they go, oops, our mistake. We used the quote, wrong munition, right? But did they though? Did they? When we know that they're literally bombing designated safe areas with the most destructive bombs that the U.S. provides for them? Well, as he said, sorry for wiping out your bloodline. We used the wrong bomb. I mean, think about that. Oops. Like, you have to realize that even if, like, let's say you accidentally, you did something that was legally justified, but accidentally turned, you know, did the wrong thing and took out 70 people. Do you think in our society they'd go, oh, you, it's okay, you meant to do the right thing, right? You're good, just keep, go on about your day, we'll take care of these dead bodies. Is that what happens? Why is it different for a government? Because they're fighting for freedom? Guys, they just murdered 70 people, they literally admitted to doing it, whether by accident or not, that's called manslaughter, right? But not for them, though. Two-tiered society or whatever multi-tiered society we live in, you don't have that. Well, you're not allowed that. And here's the point about the not just the Gaza civilians or the Palestinian Americans that are there or the Palestinian Britons that are there or Palestinian many different nationalities from around the world that every one of those governments don't seem to care about. It's also their people. 
the Israeli people that are present in regard to the IDF shooting their own people, bombing their own people, executing their own people, October 7th to today, or to that they were discussing here. Yesterday, this was the, what, a week ago? Haaretz itself did an investigation into the accidental shooting, they claim, of three Israeli hostages. And what they find, that one of them was killed roughly 15 minutes later. I would love to hear the explanation for that. As I simply said, how exactly do you explain that without the Hannibal Directive? Here's what it says. And this is just under an update here. Yotam Haim, one of the three hostages killed by Israeli soldiers, one of the many, by the way, this is just the ones they shot directly. The bombings have been killing many others. I mean, it really, it really doesn't make any sense for Hamas to go out of their way to bring people back to Gaza and then three weeks later kill them in a bunker. It just doesn't make any sense. Certainly possible. The obvious logic around this has been, and the more we find out about how they've been lying about October 7th, how they've killed their own people on October 7th, and yes, Hamas also committed crimes that day. We've proven that. But the more we find out, it begins more and more possible that they clearly were not trying to do the things they pretended happened that day, and were trying to get back the five, six, seven hundred people they've got kidnapped in Israeli prisons right now. That many of them have been there for years without charge. All these stories have been coming out through this process. The point was, of these three they killed that they admitted to, Haim was shot 15 minutes later, according to their own investigation. During this time, this is what the report said anyway, the, the battalion commander of the IDF urged Haim to leave the building into which he fled after the other two were killed. So here's, there's only two ways to hear this. The point is, when he came out of that building, they shot him. So there's three people, all Israeli hostages. Two of them came out with a, they, remember they, 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 what they wrote was they had a piece of white cloth with basically used food to write SOS. They shot those two people. You could go ahead and pretend all day long that was an accident. I don't know how you make sense of that. Then this guy, Haim, ran back into the building. This is what they reported, their own investigation, both the IDF and Haaretz, right? They then, the battalion commander urged him back out. Now, you must believe at this point, he's going, I'm Israeli, I'm I, in Hebrew, don't shoot me, I'm, I'm a hostage, right? They urged him back out, and he was then shot by two soldiers. They, they claim, despite the commander ordering them not to. Now, you could argue that's the case, but then how do you possibly explain that? I think, guys, the most logical explanation, knowing how we've already proven many times over that, yes, they did shoot their own people. And here's just one of them, by the way, that I think you should not ignore. Is this one? Make sure I got the right one. Yeah. Where even even this general article admits that uh, on Haaretz that yes they shot people at and it says they shot with the helicopter people at the festival they did they admitted to that but they also have many people on the records we played to you many times admitting that they shot their own people in many different locations testimonies reveal Israel's military shelling Israeli citizens with tanks we've got the Security head of the Kabrotspa Array admitting they shot civilians. We've got the tank drivers admitting they shot civilians. We've got IDF members admitting they shot civilians, admitting that they were ordered to shoot on areas that could have held civilians, helicopter pilots shooting civilians. I mean, at this point, we need to go, how many people were actually shot by IDF? It's a real question, which I know you're asking. 
So back to the point. Is it really that hard to believe that they wanted to take these three people out? And then for some reason that got out. So they had to either cover the story up or decided to tell you for some reason to make it look like it was only an accident. This is the only time it's happening, knowing that they've killed many more. I don't know how you, an honest person can, can see this story and not understand what's happening, or at least realize that you're being lied to in some way. These three people, they came out and said Hamas killed them. They're still doing that. They're saying that about every one of these people that we know have been killed by Israeli bombings because hostages said that when they came back. Unbelievable. Now, here's Elon Levy, the October 7th spokesman. I don't even know why that's something that makes sense. It's kind of creepy, quite frankly. A spokesman, do we have 9-11 spokesmen? It's weird. But it's because it's all about the, the Hasbara propaganda effort. He says, many hostages released still being treated for trauma. That's certainly possible, seeing as how many of them have permanent hearing damage because of the IDF bombs. Not my statement. That's directly from, my, from people that came back from Gaza as well as the fact that they say they were terrified of being killed by Israel and it being blamed on Hamas. Another exact statement coming from people back from Gaza. But he says, head of psychiatry at Tel Aviv Medical Center says that the hostages have undergone, get this, worst abuse she has ever witnessed. Think about that. Think about how insulting that is for groups literally calling on the Holocaust and then claiming that what these people dealt with was the worst they've ever seen. Coming back from, you know, with fully clothed, not emaciated, laughing, saying they were treated kindly. And now somehow after three weeks going, oh, but now it turns out they were treated worse than ever in history, which is, which is what they're saying in this article. Worst they've ever seen. I mean, really? Like this is desperation. Who anywhere, even Israelis are going to take that at face value when you are literally comparing this to one of the most agree, one of the most worst atrocities in history. I, I, all you can do, I think. Because they're caught in every possible way. Now, here's just a few of the examples. And this is what I keep trying to show people. And I'm going to show you the one now where they're going, oh, look, now she says it was like the Holocaust. What an interesting point to make after you came back saying they treated me kindly. Maybe you were wrong. Maybe they were all tortured. They were all drugged and they're all lying. Who knows? None of that seems to add up with the facts on the ground, though. It's all narrative and it certainly could be possible. But Sprinter writes the first interview with one of the first freed Israeli prisoners, as we showed you. She comes out and she says, we asked them not to talk to the, uh, oh, this, this was, they, they basically, or is that the one we asked them not to talk to us about political matters, but in general, they treat us very friendly. Oh no, that was different. I thought that was the one where they said, because this was true, Israel was asking them not to speak to, to the media. And it was after this woman. So I remember that correctly. She came out and that's what kind of, they actually attacked this woman. They said that she was a PR disaster because she said they treated us very friendly. Hamas treated us very kindly. We met all of our needs. Our food was theirs. And they were not different. We ate the same food as they ate. The Israeli army left us alone, but did not take the issue seriously. Interesting. So kindly is the point. Treated us kindly. Okay. So every person that we can see, and I mean every one of them that's come out and directly spoken to the media, save for this new development that was yesterday, including her, by the way, came out and said they treated us kindly. They gave us what we needed. None of that means that they were happy, right? They keep, it was scary, but they were treated kindly. Syrian girl, another one, speaking with Israeli state media, saying Hamas treated us kindly, gave us water, told us to calm down. This one as well. And guys, there's just the three of them. You can sh I can show you 15 more examples where she is saying on the record. All uh, very good, very kind to me. All of them food good and the kindness and... 
And she's speaking in Hebrew for the most part. But the point is simply they treat us kindly. Now, I just you could try to argue that there's some reason that's why. But you can't just simply pretend that that didn't happen, which, by the way, is sort of what's going on. So now, weirdly enough, as of yesterday, well, suddenly she says what I went through was like the Holocaust. So you could take you could decide for yourself. Don't dismiss what she's saying. Maybe she did wake up today and go, oh, I'm finally coming out of a drug and a drug induced stupor. And I finally remember that I went through hell. But it just doesn't make much sense that you can be awake and lucid and aware and still and then somehow later say this. But this is what I agree with. It doesn't make much sense. So that's what people are saying. Well, they waited weeks before they allowed her to speak. I wonder why. Or how much did you pay her to change her tune from everything good? People are good, right? I mean, it doesn't really make sense. Now, I'm not saying you're, she's wrong. I'm not, maybe there is a, be open to all possibilities. But you have to acknowledge the facts and how this contradicts basically everything we can prove. And in case you want a further back example that shows you this is long before October 7th, but actively, what's right word for it? It gives you an insight into what these entities, not all IDF members, but I would argue the ones that are leading for the Zionist agenda are willing and capable of accomplishing or carrying out rather. Uh, Which is not really discussed within Israeli society. And what I saw through my view from the operations room was time and again how Acts of violence against Palestinians are just under rug swept and um, and covered up by the military that doesn't enforce the law on violent settlers. So the fact that you're in occup- that you're occupying Palestinian territory that's the root of the problem. There cannot be an occupation that will be moral or that you know will conduct itself in a good way. It's the you know the problem is inherent. Oh, and sorry for the podcast. This is these are former IDF members speaking on the record. In in the mission, and the mission is occupying people without without them having rights and dignity and without them be, you know, choosing to be under this uh, control. I've gotten orders and given orders to my own soldiers that I later uh, regretted. I'll give you an example of something very systematic. Um, there were a couple of times where my commanders gave us a box of flashbang grenades um, and they just told us to start throwing them out of the driving car. Um, when I asked why, they told us to make the Palestinians understand who owns this place. So from my own experiences, I know that this occupation needs to end. I know that it has nothing to do with the morality we expect from ourselves. I mean, just think about that. It's exactly what we keep talking about. Bringing down buildings just to bring down buildings, right? Just to make a statement. Let them know who's in control. That's what they're doing. Just throw some grenades in there. By the way, it just happened yesterday and today. Tear gassing Al-Aqsa Mosque because they want to go pray. Like it, it, The world is simply turning a blind eye. Or I shouldn't say that. The, by and large, I think the world is very aware of this right now. But the supposed leadership, the rulers of these individual countries are absolutely turning a blind eye for the most part. They're very aware that we all see through it. So they're meekly moving over. But, you know, allowing the continuation of the genocide, you know, wrap it up by the end of the month, please. That's kind of what we're getting from them. Think about what that shows you about their, their, their integrity, their human nature, their morals, their compassion. It will end because, or lack thereof. like all other, you know, oppressive regimes and undemocratic regimes, they fail to sustain, you know, be sustainable. And, and I think deeply, as long as Palestinians don't have security, we're not going to have security. Uh, as well. Yep. And that seems that seems to be a pretty constant underlying state. Like that's what a lot of Israelis are thinking today. That and that doesn't necessarily come from a place that they care about or want something good for the Palestinians. The point is that they just simply recognize that by maintaining their plight 
and their occupation and the apartheid state that what the terrible things happening to them will only continue to make their lives more insecure. But by the way, is the whole point. That's exactly what Netanyahu and the rest of them have designed. And now they're trying to make it all about Netanyahu, even though it's not just Netanyahu. That's the scary part, as they're going to clearly try to blame it on just him. But the religious Zionism party is not going anywhere. But here is what they're saying. This is the well, this is actually one from the second from the beginning of this month. The IDF has issued a new evacuation order for areas in the southern Gaza. Right. Get out. You know, get go move over to this safer area. They keep saying. Right. Remember that these are the safer areas. And then they bomb those areas just in case you didn't see that, that the New York Times investigation on the 21st used one of the most destructive bombs in southern Gaza, but in case you didn't see it because of the watered-down title, which they've altered, here is what even Haaretz said. The most destructive bombs in areas designated as safe areas. You can't pretend like you're not bombing civilians when you're literally saying, go here, it's the safe spot, and then bombing the safe spot. Anybody pretending that didn't happen is simply a dishonest person. They're doing it. They're not even come, they're not even stepping up and going, wait a minute, that was because Hamas suddenly ran in right after we said it was safe. They're not even doing that. They're just ignoring it. When you've got their own mainstream media saying this, New York Times covering this, the United Nations pointing it out. And by the way, it just also literally happened. And you can prove it. Think about the kind of people actively pretending this is not real. Think about the kind of, I mean, my God. Intelligence, integrity, morals, capacity for everything. Think about the lack therein for people like Eli David and Ben Shapiro and Elon, every one of the people involved with this. It's staggering to me. But he says, move to the South. It'll be safer there, right? It'll be safer in those areas, despite the fact that they've killed over 60 journalists. Also, per New York Times, it's now almost 100 and something, way past that. Or the fact that they, on October 20th, Amnesty International decided, made clear that they are damning evidence of their war crimes as they target individuals, target civilians, bomb civilian locations without warning. Or since November 8th, 2023, Amnesty says, look, they're carrying out horrifying cases of torture and degrading treatment of Palestinians. But it's all Hamas fake news and human shields and whatever else you can scream to make that not be there, right? And now today. So the beginning of the month, go to the south. But now they're doing the same thing, which, by the way, has been the same process. Move from the north, move from the central areas, move to the south. Now move from the south into who cares because there's nowhere else to go. But we're also still doing that. Meanwhile, bombing where they were, where they're going on the way there, and the Rafa crossing, literally bombing every possible place. As Motaz, one of the last surviving journalists who is still there, who even to his own points is being targeted, points out that they're just dropping these leaflets now in the south, evacuating orders. Where are they supposed to go? There's literally nowhere for these people to go, which, by the way, is also what the U.N. is telling you. It's constant exodus, they're pointing out. It says they, every, every time there's evacuation orders issued by Israeli authorities, it creates a terrible sense of panic among the people in Gaza. Remember that next time they complain about a rocket hitting the field and having people skin their knees while well, they're literally murdering thousands of people a day, but then also going, oh, but, they're, but we're worried about our anxiety attacks over here. Well, that's also happening on top of them getting murdered. Gaza and right now in the South. The point is they're doing this in the South and they're telling you guys, there is no place that is safe. There is nowhere left to go. There's the places they're pointing at. They're bombing the safe locations. They're telling them to go. They're bombing. There's nowhere for these people to go. And your governments are actively allowing this to happen. I just realized that I've been harping on this point. It was meant to be a quick opening, but 
you can tell I'm passionate about this, guys. So the last hour today looks like we're going to be focused on neurotech, but this is just so overwhelmingly obvious. Daniela, Daniela Mortis points out that, you know, while we're talking about these people that are being displaced over and over and over again, just since the 7th, and are having driven into the sea, apparently, as they're openly calling for evacuation, which is exactly what we told you was coming. The justification for the displacement that 30 seconds ago was a war crime, but now it's what we have to do because they're all going to die. Well, why are they all in danger? Oh, that's right, because you're bombing them into the sea. But when it all just becomes Hamas, that's all that it's easy for them. That kind of murder just seems to come easy to them, doesn't it? It's interesting. But the point is, all those people displacing, well, those are humans with human lives and families and and normal human problems or human, uh, not ailments, but conditions like being pregnant. 50,000 pregnant women are currently suffering from thirst, malnutrition, and a lack of health care. All these women out there. How about the women out there that actively support what Israel's doing? How do you justify 50,000 pregnant women being forced to march along miles and miles of dusty terrain with no water? Pregnant. I know some of you out there that are are trying to pretend like this is justified. That point right there probably just made you upset. And you're probably still not going to do anything about it. Because you feel like you're just, you are dedicated to arguing your political side. You have to acknowledge this is not okay. There is nothing that makes this make sense. Crazy. 50,000. Now, it's more than just pregnant women, guys. There are elderly people. There are infants and children and people with missing limbs because of previous bombings. People that are so emaciated and dying and, and, uh, so it's so weird. What is the word for you know, starving? There's no thirsting, dying of thirst, unless I can't think of it. But these are people that are dealing with this, walking, and, the, and again, children, pregnant women, elderly, people with respiratory problems, people with ailments, people with mental disabilities, and they are just driving them through this area from one spot to the next, knowing that they're bombing where they tell them to go. And as Scott Horton points out, as Robert Kennedy just said, Palestinians are the most pampered people in the history of the world. I just, my God, apparently just had another person quit from his group because of that statement or statements like that. But as Rami points out, read this twice. Make sure you understand that this is from UNICEF. 9,000 Palestinian children have had to amputate one or more limbs and and 1,000 children endured it without anesthesia. Going back to Civil War times here, guys, literally chopping off the arms and legs of children without anesthesia because they were going to die otherwise because of what Israel's doing. It's not Hamas's fault this is happening. This is because of Israel. 9,000 Palestinian children without arms or legs who are being forced to walk alongside their 50,000 pregnant women as they get pushed into the sea. This? Yeah, you're right. Dehydration. See, Sharon put it in the, in the, in the chat, so I was missing it. So you can die of dehydration, die of... You can be starving. No, but still, you don't say you're dehydrating. Anyway, but good point. Dehydration would fit there. But I just think this is so apparent. Like, if you don't think this is, if you think this is acceptable, no matter what you think is driving it, I think there's something you need to reflect on in who you are as a person. I'll include this so you guys can read it for yourselves. Now, here is Elon Levy, the spokesman for October 7th, says true for each of the last 83 days where if Hamas surrender, the war will end tomorrow. Well, I guess that doesn't apply to the first week where you literally said we will deal with Hamas after, right? Let's see if I can grab that. Let's see. Maybe this one? 
Nope. Or no, not Hamas, with the hostages. After dealing with Hamas. Let's see if that pops up. Doesn't look like it. Oh, here we go. Nope. We covered this in the past already, though. But the point was right in the beginning. Israel was very clear about this. They said, we are not going to, we are not going to deal with this until we deal with Hamas. We'll deal with the other parts of this discussion after we deal with Hamas. And that came later that they were being offered an entire hostage deal from, from the first week. So he's blatantly lying about this. Either one of them. It wasn't true in the first 83, in the first week, second week, because you were refusing the deals that came out through the UN. Even the United States made that clear. And then you were forced into doing a, a, a temporary pause, which you then stopped early anyway. And then right away after that, they were trying to offer entire exchanges. That's what the ceasefire vote was for. And then because you kept refusing and kept offering limited time deal, they said, look, okay, we're done until you offer a real deal. But they then turned that into, they've denied the hostage exchange. That's not true. It was and the only person saying that is the Israeli government, the people supporting their narrative. Everything else is documented in the UN back and forth in Qatar's mediation of the conversation. They offered a full exchange and a full ceasefire. Israel said no. The US didn't, and they both voted no for it. And in the beginning, they flatly said that was secondary. So he's lying. But this is what you do when you're desperate you lie. Same point here. Now think about what's being said. If Hamas surrenders, the war will end tomorrow. So who is this aimed at? Who are we? Who are you aiming this at? I mean, the, the obvious implication is that, well, somebody needs to make that happen because we're going to keep bombing. So if they don't surrender, we're going to keep bombing. Okay, that's obvious. So you don't care about the hostages because you're going to keep bombing. When the offer was for all of them, if you just stop and then go after them later. But nope, nope, we want to do this first. Okay. But so you're now standing telling somebody, look, if you guys, if Hamas surrender, this will be over. Okay, well, Hamas isn't going to surrender, right? That's pretty dumb. They're not just going to go, oh, okay, we didn't know. Is that an option? We surrender. It's over. No, because you'll kill them. And even then, even if not, that's just not how this works. Nobody's going to stand down and go, we give up, unless they're obviously losing, which it doesn't seem that they are. So you're telling them to surrender, and then we'll get the hostage back and the whole thing is over. But are you suggesting this is our fault? Like we're supposed to coerce them into surrendering? Like you get my point? Who is this aimed at? All this ultimately is, is a stated justification for why this will never stop until they decide to stop. Hamas will never surrender. They're never going to just lay down their arms and give up. They're never just going to give up the hostages for nothing because that means they will get killed. So ultimately, you're saying, you're, you're calling on the morality of Hamas and saying that it's everybody else's fault because they don't choose to just stop. You get what I'm saying here? Like, it's so flatly dishonest to act like it's only on everybody else. The only group in this, the only two groups in this that have any real decision-making over what happens is Hamas and, uh, and to, a, to, a, to a degree, the other Palestinian resistance and Israel. That's it. So when they stand up and say, if Hamas surrenders, well, they're only either speaking to Hamas or the rest of the world at large. What are we going to do about it? See, they're just trying to make this everybody else's responsibility. Everything about their entire agenda has been, we're on defense, we're defending ourselves, it's your fault, it's their fault, it's nobody's fault in, in regard to what Israel's done. Despite the obvious accountability for funding Hamas, for supporting Hamas. And again, I, I always, 
I know I've shown this a million times, like a lot of things, but sometimes it's important for the newer audiences to see the same things. For those that might not know. And actually, like, I actually prefer to go to the article itself as opposed to the actual tweet from Her- from Haretz. But were they? Oh, wait, it's, uh, of course, they now have it in the block. So I'll just include this for now so I don't have to waste time finding it. But that they say very clearly, Haretz. And this is two days after October 7th. Anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of Palestinian state, which means the two-state solution, the lie they've been telling you about how they want that, anyone who wants to stop that needs to support bolstering Hamas and giving money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy. And yet you still get people screaming about how it's a lie, even though it's quoted by mainstream corporate media in Israel. And Netanyahu said it literally on the record and said that this is our, it's our strategy to keep them divided. So one, admitting they're lying about the two-state solution, and two, literally funding the group that literally blew... And this is the same point, I guess, since we're talking about it. But then they came out right afterward, a day after October 7th, as Times of Israel, and said for years, Netanyahu propped up Hamas, and now it's blown up in our faces. Undeniable. So when they stand up and say, if they surrender, then everything will end. All they're really saying is, we're going to keep doing this until we get what we want. And even their own people seem to know that. Desperate. Now, to go forward in regard to a little bit of a foreign policy point, I just wanted to make sure you saw this. And I promise you, this stems from Israel. The United States, France, Germany, and the UK just suddenly, out of nowhere, sent a joint statement out saying, we urge Iran to immediately de-escalate its nuclear program. Yeah, we're just going back to that story. I mean, you may not know why this is so ridiculous. You should if you watch this show. They've already said this isn't happening. This is literally from July of this year. A U.S. intelligence assessment says Iran is not pursuing nuclear weapons. The findings correspond with previous U.S. assessments about Iran's nuclear program, although many in Congress and elsewhere have been skeptical. Right. So the the agenda makers want this to be the case. The facts don't back it up. So the agenda makers get angry with the assessment because it doesn't back up what they want. It's the same thing we see every day. The media or the fake journalists and the politicians creating stuff. When there are people around there doing real work that say that's not true, but they don't care about that. Iran is not currently undertaking the key nuclear weapons development activities that would be necessary to produce a testable nuclear weapon. Isn't that exactly paraphrasing what we've been saying the entire time? Yes. These findings have been generally supported by inspections from the UN's nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, the very group that they point to justify. And here we are. And it's, it's been the same ever since. Or rather, I mean, ever since I've been covering this, rather. They said it's not happening. The U.S. is not happening. The very entity that's supposed to be looking into it says it's not happening. But guess what? The U.N. is Hamas. So that's why. But think about the entire time the UN has been working on this and Israel has been working alongside the IAEA to say, look, go after Iran. They're doing bad things. So does that mean Israel's working with Hamas to go after Iran? <laughs> that doesn't make much sense because that's a stupid narrative. They're lying to you to get what they want. But how dumb it is to go after them saying, look, they're doing the bad thing with their nuclear program when like months ago you said not happening. It's all stemming from propaganda. They're losing control, guys. Now, Getting into the conversation of the neurotech in general, or that, that overall point we're going to get into, I wanted to start with this, just to make an interesting point about the lies we're told. And this interestingly does overlap with a few different topics, but you might have seen this. This is from yesterday. Google settles $5 billion, that is a billion with a B, 
consumer privacy lawsuit. It's not going to surprise you. It's like every other thing you could possibly imagine. And it's, you know, I make this point all the time and it's not because I'm psychic. It's just because this is what they do. When I tell you they're going to use your private data from the COVID-19 stuff, or they're going to use your data from X, Y, and Z. And then people say, they said they wouldn't, that you're a liar. And then later enough, sure enough, it's not that we did this. It's like, oops, here was a mistake or oops, this is why it happened. And people go, yeah, that was explained. Well, it doesn't really ultimately matter. The point we made is that it would happen and they ended up doing it, which is always the case, which is that they always take your private information. Because quite frankly, I believe they think they have a right to it. They think they own you. And I just mean power structures. But Alphabet's Google has agreed to settle a lawsuit claiming it secretly tracked the internet use of millions of people, but specifically while they were using private browsing. And this is the larger thing, guys. Do you really believe that they're going to be able to when we get into the nanotech side of this and the in the smart, like the, the more technocratic directions, the advancing of technology where it's going to become very invasive, where they say the lack of privacy will improve the society and blah, blah, blah. But don't worry, it'll be anonymized. Don't worry, we won't use it for personal reasons. Every single time that turns out to be a lie, whether it's a police department or the government or a company. And here we are again. And it's not just using their product. It's using the product they give you that claims this is the safe one, right? Here's Google normal, but here's your private window where we won't do the thing that we go on to do. As the plaintiffs allege that Google's analytics, cookies, and apps let the Alphabet unit track their activity, even when they set Google's Chrome browser to incognito and other and other browsers, excuse me, browsers to private mode. They said his turn this turned google into quote an unaccountable trove of information <laughs> my god a little behind the times don't you think you're a, you're about two decades too late but it says by letting the company learn about their friends hobbies favorite foods shopping habits and potentially embarrassing things now there's a reason i think this gets i mean well it is a lawsuit so maybe this is just organic but i usually think these things come out for a reason we're way past this this is my point from before if we're still worried about the kind of like digital data they're getting about your personal life because you're typing into a computer versus like the internal bio surveillance that we're getting into you're behind the times and i think that's the in interesting thing here my point is when we do step into that field and they start telling you that it's important to track the internal biodynamics of your body to make sure we're all safe from the next virus and they go but don't worry it'll all be private remember this filed in 2020 of course the lawsuit covered millions of google users since 2016 and sought at least $5,000 in damages per user viol per violation. Are you going to see that? We all use Google at some point. Nope. But the per people suing will get the money. But does that mean that we got, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? But keeping that in mind, we just talked uh, the last show about the appeal discussion that I wanted to follow up on, which then leads us into this larger point for two different reasons. One, I wanted to make sure we went over the actual sheet because I, I didn't notice that they had done fact checks on this. And it was important. When we did this original show right here, you remember we went through this and we went through it very specifically. And I showed you the appeal MSDS sheets that had the same name, but clearly did not seem to be the same product. But I went over them anyway, just to show you what they said in the possible connection. And then went over the specific one that was the more, what they claim is the organic discussion. And they're claiming that people misrepresented the cleaning product as appeal, which we differentiate on the show. But I want to make sure we're clear on this today that even the one that's supposed to be the, the, one, the, the actual product shows you that this is concerning for many reasons. And then even more so when we get into the main point of today. Now, here's the video just to show you this again, which I have confirmed, by the way. 
I, like I said on the show, we talked about it that for the podcast, the appeal, the, the organic apples that have the appeal tag on the actual product bag with a sticker organic stuck over it, showing you clearly, I think they're trying to hide that. But obviously we worry maybe this is a, a fake thing for clicks on Twitter, blah, blah, blah. This is real. Whether or not the video is real, this is in fact happening. And I'm going to show you what they're using. It's actually called organic peel. Yeah, laugh, laugh like everybody else would. Like some Gates-backed concept, WF-backed concept that's organic appeal. So you're making a fake thing to go over it and call it organic? That's embarrassing. But it is there, and it is happening. And I want to show you why this is important. First, let's just make sure you remember this video. Gotta prop it. Can I just flip? Because I want to keep it continuously recording. I can't see it, but hopefully y'all can see me. There's a sticker. Are you kidding me? So that's the appeal sticker, or rather, the, the on the bag. Which is definitely the same company and the same tag, the same loco, uh, icon or logo. All right, so the, that's the, that's the point, right? And by the way, I'll include these. I had these later, further down in the tabs, for just in case I want to mention them. But I discussed the idea of the in, in the internal bio surveillance. We've talked about this, the Lieber-Langer overlap, for those that know what I'm talking about. And we've discussed this, this is from 2015, which includes uh, Robert Langer, injectable meshes for neural recordings via syringe, as well as the current iteration from April 2023, which includes Charles Lieber. Can't miss that. Which is stitching flexible electronics into the brain. This is the biosurveillance side of all this. This is where we're going, but in a... In a kinetic discussion point, like opening them with a syringe and, you know, or rather a, a scalpel and that kind of thing versus smart dust level, which is where we already are. But back to this point. So we're going to go over this in general. And as I said, I just discussed this in April. The simple fact that it is being covered shows a deliberate effort to hide it from us, in my opinion. Before we get into that, I wanted to point this out too. I thought this was interesting. Somebody reached out to me and simply said, regarding the organic point, that they apparently go and buy hard cider from what they say from Sprouts or some organic store. And they've been doing this for a really long time and basically leave it in their fridge or treat it themselves and let it turn into hard cider, which any, any natural, any fruit juice or anything like that, or, you know, grape juice will, will ferment over time. The, the sugar, that's how you make wine and not, not just leaving it in your fridge kind of way, but ultimately it ferments and the sugars turn into alcohol. So she does this and leaves it in the fridge. Now, the point was she started doing this or has been doing this for a long time and start recently after buying these, they'd put them in her fridge and they wouldn't change. So she called the manufacturer and simply said, you know, why is this happening? Finally, she says after multiple people she spoke to, it turns out they, they informed her that they are in fact adding several off-label chemicals to keep it from fermenting. Yet it's labeled organic. And I'm telling you, the, the, conflation of these. It's the anti-human agenda like everything else. The conflation of what is natural, organic, and human and what is not. And this is everywhere. So even the organic term, guys, is because it's like the, or even taking it from the larger sense of the ESG discussion. Right? It's meaningless when they say, well, here's the, you know, we're allowed to use it for freedom because it means that. That's the point of saying that nuclear weapons and gas and, and anything else are allowable for green 
ESG compliance if the U.S. government does it because they use it to fight for freedom, which then adds to more better things. It's ridiculous. So whoever knows, whatever the reasoning is, they can art logically say, well, this is done from something like this is the point we're getting into with the appeal point. Just because it stems from something that is natural, it does not mean that it's organic. And on top of that, we're going to get into what the ingredients actually are. So first, here's the show we just recently went over on April 20th. Gates, weft-backed edible food coating already in use. Now, here's the ones we went over, two of the ones we went over in the other show that are not the same product. This is the one we discussed that's a, it's a cleaning product. I'll include them for you to look at for yourself. Here is another one, also APL, but it's a, from a cleaning company. Here's one of the posts from AP, you know, saying, misrepresenting the safety of the, pro- of the product. Just so you show, show you that they were really coming after this. Now, here is the actual one. Now, let me show you something that I find really, really uncomfortable. Now, here, this is Organapeel. You can look up, and here, this is the actual product coming from Appeal Sciences. This is their organic version, and I'll actually read you from this article in a second. And you can see right there, by the way, Appeal Sciences, which is what they operate under. Organapeel. <laughs> Gotta be kidding me. Here's the important part. Look at what it says here. Now, actually, I will. I, I should. I, I'm going to grab this real quick too. I forgot it, this is relevant here, as well as over there. Derek put up this great article. I'll mention in a second. Here's the point. This after, on, in 2019, which is being used on your organic food right now, in some places like you just saw, is registered as a pesticide. This is not. This is, this is, I've double, triple check. This is real. Registered as a pesticide. Appeal Sciences. It says, on the basis of information furnished by the registrant, the above-named pesticide is hereby registered under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. Now, there are, there are things that end up on this that are things that are, we've already seen this in the COVID-19 discussion. But here's what's most, first of all, what I think is most absurd and insulting. We just talked about the Berkey water filter. Derek put out this great article, how, how the EPA is attempting to kill the Berkey water filter. And you know the argument they're making because of the silver that's inside of this product, that it is regulated under the Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. Okay. So let me get this straight. So over here in a product that is in fact actually helping people filter their water, you claim because it is under this act, because it uses silver, even though it does not end up in your water, which it makes all the difference in the world, means that you can't sell it for this purpose you know, to, to be ingested, right? Okay, I disagree with that. But why then is this allowed to not just be, I mean, to literally be ingested, eaten, even though this is registered as a pesticide? This one is not. You're forcing them to do that now. Isn't that wild? I mean, it's obviously contradictory. Here's what it says under the main part. Get this. Active ingredient, citric acid, that's only 0.66%. And that's where they go, oh, it's organic. Guess what? Other ingredients, which we don't get to know, consist, it's 99.34% of what this appeal product is. And I'll show you why that's so concerning in a second, other than the obvious. But this is organic appeal, not just, not just appeal, but the organic version. Hazards into humans and domestic animals. Now, to be, to be clear, this is about the use and transport and, 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 use of basically as a chemical from the chem from the the groups that will be adding this 
and having like a bulk container of it and adding it to their product, which is not exactly the same as the small amount you may get that they argue is generally safe on your avocado or your apple, right? But my point is, if you, if it shows you that it's dangerous for people that are using it and applying it, then at some level, it's still dangerous for you. That's always the case. And you should have a right to know that. Not just being told that it's safe and effective and completely organic. It's nothing to worry about. Well, it says right here, caution causes moderate eye irritation. Well, it seems per- And that was my point from the original show. This was not earth shattering. It was not as as alarming and dangerous as the COVID injection, but it was still very disconcerting. Very, un- very ner- made me very nervous about what might have been behind it. But just on the surface, it seemed like it wasn't healthy for you. And the whole sale is that it's benign. Definitely not benign. Quite frankly, I do think it's dangerous, and I'll get into why. That's when we get into the other part of this. But just before that, moderate eye irritation. Well, okay, then your child's eating the apple and rubs its eye, rubs the, their eye, and suddenly they're hurting their, their... I mean, these things matter. Avoid eye contact or with their, contact with eyes or clothing. Wear safety glasses with handling. Of course, that's the in bulk, but I don't see why that's different. Wash thoroughly with soap and water after handling and before eating. Well, they literally tell you on the thing that that's not necessary, that you're not need, you don't need to wash it off. Call a poison control center or doctor for treatment advice. There's only one other point I think I was going to show you. That was mainly the point, just the general point right there. Do not contaminate water, food, or feed by storage or disposal. Anyway, so the main point for me, guys, is simply that it's telling you right there that this is not some benign product that definitely can hurt you, even bulk or not, and that 99.34% of it, we don't even know what, what it is. As they're literally stopping Berkey water filters for the same, under the same justification. Now, here is a great uh, organic insider. Not I'm not familiar with the work, but it's a great article I read. This is from from the July of this year. Key takeaways from appeal controversy and where we go from here. Now, it says Appeal Sciences, which has raised $640 million from investors, one of which was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, produces an organic approved coating called Organapeel for various fruits and vegetables. And based on the company's website, it is being used on organic apples. Currently for sale in Idaho and Germany, which I'm sure that's been broadened out to, well, actually, I'm not sure exactly where that video was, but I'm guessing it's everywhere. I've seen it in Tennessee. Over the past month, misinformation and confusion about the coating spread like wildfire. As a similarly named product that contains toxic synthetic chemicals was widely misidentified as being approved for use in organic production. Where we currently stand is that appeals, organapeel coating, which has been registered with the EPA as a fungicide. Well, what's interesting is it seems to make it clear that it's it's registered as a pesticide, but under the fungicide, insecticide, fungicide, rodenticide act. To me, it's clear that it says pesticide right there. But in either case, it's the same point for me. But it says that registered as a fungicide or a pesticide, or rather just under that act, is comprised of 0.66% citric acid and 99.34% of a formulation that is not disclosed. Does that make anybody uncomfortable? That's where this goes. That's the point I was making last time, which I wish that I should have done this on that show. But it's like the whole overlap with this. When, when we just went through a process, by the way, we're still going through, we find out that there's DNA contamination, that there's misfire, there's extra protein, all sorts of things that are the way are not what we were sold. And we're supposed to act like that was all an accident? 
And that's the injection we're talking about. Now, God only knows what else is happening. But here it says under, under the title of the USA needs to remove ambiguity. It says all the formulations ingredients must be disclosed to any organic certifier who approved the use of this product, as well as any third-party materials review organization, MROs. I didn't know this. I find this very interesting. It says that has been asked to confirm that the materials in, the material is in compliance with the USDA organic regulations, which, among other things, means no use of genetic engineering. The Organic Materials Review Institute, OMRI, the most well-known MRO in the organic industry, completed a review of organic peels. So here's the interesting dynamic. So to understand this, the point is that you have organic certifiers that certify products as organic. But to do so, they lean on these third parties called MROs. And MROs are actually the ones that, in, that confirm the products, which then give this confirmation to the certifiers, which then certify them as organic, which doesn't make much sense. It's the ridiculous bureaucracy we're used to, but it makes sense once you realize that that MRO is in this middle ground, like the sort of like a anal anal analogy to like the public-private partnership, right? Where they're, so they're kind of dancing in the middle. And you'll see what I mean. It says, what we do know based on public availability of FDA documents is that monoglycerides and, and diglycerides, which are additives, have trans fats, often used in processed foods, appear to comprise part of the 99.34%, something that OMRI would not confirm or deny. Now, why would that be? Realize my point in the very first episode of this was monoglycerides themselves are, are not, it's not, again, it wasn't earth shattering, but it's something that most people shouldn't, usually don't want. Trans fats are something most people try to avoid. And yet you're adding them to fruit. <laughs> you think that's going to cause more obesity? I mean, a lot of things you could look into. But it says, according to or Orsi Desi, executive director and CEO of specifically OMRI, which is the main one that dealt with Organapeel, it says OMRI reviewed and approved appeals Organapeel as a fungicide. So that's them stating that as well for post-harvest use. Hear this, guys but not as a fruit coating for use in further processing. That's stated by the group that approved this as for a fungicide, but organic. They approved it for post-harvest use of the fruit, not a fruit coating. That was their explicit statement when asked by this group. That's crazy. Now, it says Appeal clearly markets its products as a coating and explained it as such to the FDA in its generally accepted as safe application, which, again, we have for you right here. Or wherever it was. Hold on. This one. Or no. Oh, that's coming up. I forgot. It's this one here. This is the generally accepted as safe notice, which very clearly, when you read through this, makes it clear that it is a coating. I don't think I can search in this one. Yeah, there we go. Just get to one of those pots in here. Yeah, so edible coating for fruits and vegetables. That's what they're that's what they're claiming this is. Generally accepted as safe. You got to love that. That's what that means. Not safe, but generally accepted as safe. That's that's how they get by these things. It's bureaucracy. But so if the group the the uh, dang it, where is it? MRO, the Materials Review Organization, explicitly says this is not 
for coating fruit, but for post-harvest use. And yet in the FDA application for generally accepted as safe, they made a point to say it was coating. All that really shows you is the FDA either didn't even look or is complicit like in many other examples. It's a revolving door entity, guys. They are a captured agency. It says where it gets confusing is that the NOP 5023 language that the USD refers to coatings as further processing, but OMRI did not approve Organapeel as a coating for use in further processing. But it says OMRI approved Organapeel as a fungicide for post-harvest handling, whose definition in the NOP 5023 includes pest control practices, which describes a fungicide. Right, so what is it—a coating or a fungicide? You can't—you can't play this both ways, especially when that does not apply to the concept of being edible. But it says MROs are third-party organizations that work closely with the organic certifiers, providing technical expertise to review whether materials and processes are in compliance with organic regulation. But wouldn't you argue that the organic certifiers would be the very people to be able to prove that? It just seems so ridiculous to me. But so, but like I said before. You end up with these certifiers who are now reliant on these MROs to say yes or yes, it is not. Or it is or is not. Now, here's what gets interesting. MROs, who are the, clearly the decision makers, and get, the MRO were one of the groups that said this is okay for appeal. They are not organic certifiers and are, in fact, not regulated by the USDA. This came about when ultimately the USDA, USDA responded to questions saying, look, we can't do anything about it. They are not under our purview. We are not reg they are not regulated by us. So it's this perfect lack. It's it's basically plausible deniability. You got the M you got the the MROs in the middle are dictating what is or is not go organic. The USDA has USDA has no regulation over them, but the certifiers are required to use them to get the USDA's approval. This doesn't make any sense. And it does when you realize it's about creating a situation where they can do whatever they want. Quote, the problem we have is that organic certifiers almost always rubber stamp the decisions made by OMRI, which is the group that did justify the appeal. So again, it's saying the problem we have is that these organic certifiers almost always rubber stamp decisions by this company when it comes to deciding what materials and formulations are allowed in organic. Why wouldn't they? They know they need them and they're the ones they go to to ask. So why would they? I mean, what, if they're the ones double checking what these companies are doing, why do they need those companies? It's, it's seemingly set up this way. And this is being stated by Mark Castle, executive director of Organic Eye, one of the industry's most important watchdog groups. It says, quote, so 99.34% of the formulation of Organapeel is not only being kept hidden, hidden from the public, but we are forced to trust an unregulated, corporate-funded, there it is, organization in OMRI to essentially interpret and enforce the USDA organic regulations. The company funded by the very companies that are being regulated. This is Monsanto and agri agriculture. It is Pfizer and vaccines. It's the same thing everywhere you look. They're taking advantage of you everywhere you look. They don't care about you. This creates a real lack of trust, he says. In 2011, the National Organic Standards Board recommended to the USDA that it provide direct oversight over these MROs. Obviously. And guess what? Like I said, they simply declined on the basis that it only had authority to regulate the certifiers. Okay, well, who makes that authority? 
right? I mean, this is all simply a power of a question of power. The government made that situation. It can easily dictate it not to be that way. The point is it allows lack of accountability. They all point at each other like the scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz, and we all done. We all, and it's the same thing that happens when you go after these things yourself. The MROs point to the regular certifiers, the certifiers point to the USDA, and you get run around. That's how this works. It ends by saying, similar to how the organic community had an enormous impact on pressuring hand. Oh, this isn't this. There's one more point, actually. But this is an important point in regard to your influence, your actual influence. Not the illusion of checking a box and pretending like they care what you think in presidencies, but the fact that your dollar and other ways you can influence with your, you know, your choices. But voting with your dollar is the only real power we have. It says similar to how the organic community had an enormous impact on pressuring brands to remove uh, carrageenan from their products, even though it was never deemed illegal by the USDA because they don't care about you. The same is already taking place here with appeal. The point is. Natural grocers and plenty of others around the country have already decided to not use products that use appeal. This is one of them that's already banned it in their 166 stores. Not because they're required to, because they listen to you, because they care about what you think. Not like the government, not like the USDA, not like this company, but a, com- a grocery store brand chain that just cares what you think and cares about possibly actually being healthy. Finally, it says what this appeal controversy all comes back to is that consumers should prioritize purchasing organic from their local farmers. I know that's not easy for everybody in in certain cities, but you can find ways around this. And it says as these producers will be much less likely to use controversial ingredients and materials. After all, they're not storing produce, which is the only real point of why this is happening, like apples for six months or longer. The same holds true for the importance of growing your own food as much as possible. Now, really think about that last point. Why in the world would you want anything on your produce or food that makes it last exponentially longer than it's naturally supposed to? There's one word for that, guys. It's called unnatural. You can't really rectify unnatural and organic. They are not the same thing. And here is the APL Technology, Inc., Grant from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, just to show you, to extend the shelf life of crops without refrigeration, to protect them from being eaten by pests, right? So they're trying to conflate the post-harvest with the use of your, and this, it's the game that's being played. And here is the appeal point from the World Economic Forum. Appeal is a California-based company that is fighting with the $2.6 trillion global food waste crisis by using advanced advances in material science to prevent waste in the first place. Well, let's talk about that for a second before we go into the larger point that I'm making about the neuroweapons. And that is, everything is justified with a problem that they seem to create themselves. Problem, reaction, solution. It's very simple. Now, it's much more complicated than that, but that point is simple, right? They drive in a problem, then they get you to care about that problem, right? They are, And they, they propose a solution or rather, you know, they create a problem, they wait for you to react to it, then they propose a solution they've already had prepared, right? So as they're saying, look, we need to solve this global food crisis, even though we just went through all sorts of obvious examples of them destroying the food industry, destroying food infrastructure, and blaming Putin, because I guess that just made sense in the moment, which is how stupid that is right now. But let's realize that that's not even real in general. I've I've mentioned this many times in the past. I wrote this in 2016. This is about how France took, took a step in regard to not stopping basically allowing companies to 
give away food that was going to be waste. But this is important to understand. And this has only gotten worse since this was originally written, which I think was actually 2015. It says the world at this time already produces more than one and a half times enough food to feed everyone on the planet. All the source materials here, by the way, you can check it for yourself. That's enough to feed 10 billion people. The population peak expected by 2050. Currently, one third of the food produced worldwide ends up in the trash every year for a variety of reasons. The United States is by far the worst, with about 60 tons of food wasted every year. Again, this is from six years ago. This means that world hunger could literally be solved right now by simply utilizing the 33% of the world's food that is wasted. The amount of wasted food is almost as outrageous as the reasoning behind its waste. Grocery stores routinely overstock their shelves to give the appearance of abundance, which then mostly ends up in the landfill when it's not sold, much of which is still completely usable. The, u- the usual reasoning behind the waste of these products is superficial. An item that is misshapen or off-colored is tossed upon delivery. These items are trashed, whether or not they would be perfectly edible, for the simple fact that the consumer wants to see a perfectly shaped fruit because this is what they have be conditioned to buy. If a fruit or vegetable does not meet strict aesthetic standards, ask any grocery store. Most farmers will e- not even attempt to sell it to them. Not in the grocery store point, but, the, but ask any of them along the chain. They'll tell you the same thing. The product will be tossed aside because it mar- the markets will simply not pay for it. Most purveyors will opt to throw out what they consider to be unusable product instead of donating this to people in need because they're operating under the false impression, at least they claim anyway, that they'll be held liable if one is to become ill after eating a portion of the donated food. This is simply incorrect. And a common misconception, I think deliberately used, the Emerson Act of 1996 states that if one donates food in good faith, they cannot be sued. They all know this, they just don't care. And there's probably a more nefarious agenda behind that. According to the USDA in 2013, nearly 50 million Americans lived in food insecure households that could have greatly benefited from even a fraction of that food. Lastly, currently, Americans waste, and this again, five years ago, waste almost 40% of their food. That's $165 billion worth every year, about 20 pounds per person every month. This waste, this wasted yet perfectly edible food could fill 730 football stadiums. The percentage of waste has increased by around 50% since 1974, in a time when California, at this time anyway, and still is, I think, was struggling with its own resources. Throwing away usable product is a negligent waste of the state's labor and natural resources that went into its production, such as water. This gravely needed sustenance then rots in landfills. Many of which, by the way, these stores will literally pour bleach over what they put in this dumpster because they're just that, I don't know, petty. My point in telling you this, guys, is the, the a lie will be sold to justify whatever they want to justify. If we already have enough food, why are we putting gross things around the natural food to justify why we can use the perfectly shaped food longer? And people just don't even understand this. So, National Defense University Press. This was posted January 9th, 2020. It's been talked about long before that. I think the timing is interesting getting into where the use of the injections kind of spurred on this new conversation. Redefining neuroweapons, emerging capabilities in neuroscience and neurotechnology. This, is a, this was a, a person named James Giordano, who's who I'm focusing on today. 
And he writes, as global conflicts assume increasingly asymmetric and gray zone forms, the ability to employ current and newly developing techniques and tools of neurocognitive science to manipulate human thought and behavior, that's really what we're talking about, must be viewed as a present and increasing challenge. 2020, using neurocognitive tools, which include both physical things like nanotechnology and smart dust or things like sonic energy like Havana, that can and do influence thought and behavior in real time. Ongoing developments in neuroscience and technology, which tend toward, trend toward five to 10 years trajectories and prog- progression, make the brain sciences valid, viable, and of growing value for operational use in warfare, intelligence, and national security. Acronym is WINS. Illustrative of this process are a series of U.S. government assessments and such capabilities. Of such capabilities, a 2008 report by the Ad Hoc Committee on Military and Intelligence Methodology for Eminent Emergent, excuse me, Neurophysiological and Cognitive Neuroscience Research in the next two decades claimed that neuroscience technology was not sufficiently mature to enable operational employment. But that's typically what they say when they know they're going to roll this out and don't want you to know about it. However, a set, and that was 2008. However, a subsequent report by this same committee in 2014 noted that advancements enabled several domains of that area to be capable and operational, operational, operationalized, operational, operationalizable, geez, for those categories. This was uh, substantiated by a number of nations' increased interest in and consideration and use of neurocognitive methods and tools for military and intelligence purposes. It's already being used. Indeed, neuroscience and technology can be employed as both soft and hard weapons in competition with adversaries. You know, like the conversation of what they're doing with those weapons in Havana and elsewhere. In the former sense, neuroscience and technology research and development can be utilized to exercise socioeconomic power in global markets. That's terrifying to me. These are the kind of larger points we're talking about. Not the obvious to see. Those are just as alarming, but the ideas of how these Subtle activities have been used in social media or politics. I mean, it's everywhere. They can be employed to augment friendly forces capabilities or to denigrate the cognitive, emotive, and or behavioral abilities of hostiles like you, by the way, seeing as how their war on domestic terrorism is aimed at you and always has been. The point is they see MAGA as hostile. They see people calling out what what they're doing at Gaza as hostile. The point is you become hostile by simply calling out the government's crimes. So what they're literally saying is these technologies can be employed to uh, manipulate the way you think and feel and act. It says both soft and hard weaponized technologies can be applied in, this is my point, kinetic or non-kinetic engagements. So nanotechnology that can biologically change you or ways that they can use non-kinetic engagements that can have the same effects to incur, incur destru- destructive or disruptive. He makes a point about that. Historically, biochemical weapons have included incapacitating or lethal agents, such as nerve gas, irritants, vesculants, and paralytics. Numerous examples of such weapons can be drawn from World War II, or excuse me, World War I to the present. As shown in this table, scientists fortify and add this current palette of weaponized tools. So just realize where this is really going. And it says, while many of these types of weaponized neuroscience technology for example, chemicals, biologic agents, and toxins, all of which fall in this category, have been addressed in and by extant 
forums, treaties, conventions, and laws, other newer technologies. This is my whole point. And technologies have not. Thus, particular advances in this area, especially in the areas that we're not even thinking about, have an increased potential for dual use and direct use in the concepts of warfare, intelligence, national security. I mean, guys, it's just so alarming on the surface of this. It's saying we've already passed all these regulatory aspects, you know, these treaties and what we, but there's a lot of this that exists in ways, in, in realms that we're not even discussing, that the average person is even aware of, and they're already being used. Dual use, remember, weapon or benefit. And on that exact point, actually, we'll come to this in a second. We've already talked about this. The idea of the both the injected, but also the aerosolized version of exactly what we're talking about. Dual use tech of mRNA, lip, mRNA loaded lipid nanoparticles that can kill a cell or it can, it can heal it. That's what we're talking about. So here is, and he got the name wrong in this. It's James Giordano. He corrected it down here. On neuroweapons. Now, I'm going to stop it many times during this. It's, it's 14 minutes. We may not get to the end of it based on time, but I want to go over a part, much of this. So here, this is, this is, again, this is, I think it says it right here. I thought I had one up here where it said, I forgot, I think I closed it. His background. This is, this one you can see from Brain Science from Bench to Battlefield from 2017. This is the same clip we're going to show you. This one it's from. This is the full clip. It's an hour and 11 minutes. From 2017, and I'll read that afterward. Well, I'll read this now. I guess this does give his background. So it's saying basically the use of sarin gas and, and VX nerve gas and to assassinate people like Kim Jong-nam and all these different, what they've done, by the way, it's simply saying all this is something that we're discussing and that what they're working on, the working group for the European Union Human Brain Project. Sounds lovely. It says reinforce the need to more rigorously address research and the use of weaponizable brain science. The point is they already know this is happening. Dr. But Dr. James Giordano is professor in the departments of neurology and biochemistry, chief of the neuro, neuroethics studies program and co-director of the O'Neill Pellegrino program in brain science and global health law and policy at the Georgetown University Medical Center in, in Washington, D.C. He's also the senior science advisory fellow of the strategic multi-layer assessment group of the joint staff of the Pentagon. Not some schlub. Here's what he has to say. What types of kind of neuroweapons can we engage and develop? Well, I provide them for you. I don't want to go down into specific granularities of what each one of them do because I don't want to give you bad dreams. And you're not going to blame me if you wake up in a cold sweat screaming in the middle of the night. But this is what we can do with these things. Again, let's think here about drugs and bugs. If we're looking at drugs, we're looking at what we call in-close pharmaceuticals. These are not weapons of mass destruction. These are weapons of mass disruption. What they can be used to do is create particular yet highly selective effects in individuals so that they can be delivered at very, very low doses, yet deliver a high amplification effect that's called a hormetic potential. Think about comparatively what we're dealing with right now, right? The reality of the actual danger behind what we're, like, I'm not talking about the necessarily the side effects of what they got. I, I'm not sure necessarily convinced that the COVID-19 injection and the side effects that were caught, rather the effects that are still hurting the people that did what they were told, I'm not convinced entirely that, that all of that was necessarily supposed to happen. But talking about the actual effect of whatever the COVID-19 actually was, 
kind of seems like that lines up. Less something that was caused disruption that justified a lot of actions. And, you know, many people argue that it wasn't even there in general, which also aligns with this, right? That That is a level of the same kind of, you know, manipulation. To be and, able and to- now, by the way, don't forget the parasite stress theory conversation. I'll grab that link for you where this is exactly what they discuss, right? That the, it, it takes some kind of a threat. In this case, they discuss a pathogen which is part of this conversation. And all they really need is the threat of it to drive you into a certain position. I mean, all of this falls into this category. Alter cognitions, emotions, and behaviors. How do you do that? Well, you can work on key operatives and number of high amplification so that they can be delivered at very, very low doses, yet deliver a high amplification effect that's called a hormetic potential to be able to alter cognitions, emotions, and behaviors. How do you do that? Well, you can work on key operatives. In other words, this individual who's sitting before me may be a diplomat. They are now coming to interact with me. They may have a posture that does not necessarily align with mine. Can I alter their cognition? Can I alter their affiliation? Can I alter their emotionality? And in such a way, might I be able to alter their behavior? Yeah, I can. And if, in fact, this individual possesses political or charismatic capability, charm, charisma, leadership potential, to then stand before their people and say, this guy's my best buddy now, they might go, well, I'm following this guy. Or they might think he's stock raving mad and I've created social disruption within his political ranks. I can do that on a variety of levels, from individuals who are head of a small family or group, to the tribal, to the community, to the large-scale population. So we can utilize these things to be able to affect key operators and dynamic individuals who may charismatically, politically, or through other means of power be able to affect groups. It's a ripple effect. It is a ripple effect. Moreover, we can induce a number of neuromicrobiological agents to then incur something called high morbidity. These are not necessarily mortal agents. Neuromicrobiological, guys. I mean, think about that statement. That's an overlap here, right? We're talking about, I mean, this is, and this is like, I'm not pretending like I even fully wrap my mind around how far this goes. I think that's my overall point that none of us do. Like even just what he's outlining here probably suggests that they're light years ahead of that. Like, I just think that we need to fully wrap our minds around the, the, the lengths to which they're going, especially as they begin to more and more see us as a threat to keep us under control. We can modify the existing... And again, as, as Orwell's pointing out, this is from 2017, right? I, again, I have the full hour and 11 minute episode or presentation you can listen to and you should. I might go through it more in depth. But again, this, this is not a new conversation, right? It's just so alarming to see how obvious this is in the directions they've been going and have been pushing for a long time. But my point from a lot of things we discussed over the last so many years or more is the technological advancement that re- that kind of reaches the point of their vision. And I think we're seeing a lot of these things take place right now. And that's the kind of wild west we're in where they, and I'll, I'll get to that in the injection side of this, the ferret inside of this, the things they're pushing right now. And they're saying, well, we're going to try this. We're going to try that. And any one of these things could have some kind, could end up, as I think Del Bigtree pointed out at the beginning of all this with the, the, the genetic manipulations, potentially could be a species ender. Like these are not, hyper, this is not hyper, hi, hyperbole. They could make one wrong turn and literally destroy the species with the kind of stuff they're working with. I don't think they care about that. Thing, palette of bacteria and viruses through the use of gene editing techniques, very viable. This has been some of my ongoing effect. It is a ripple effect. Moreover, we can induce a number of neuromicrobiological agents to then incur something called high morbidity. These are not necessarily mortal agents. We can modify the existing palette of bacteria and viruses through the use of gene editing techniques. Very viable. This has been some of my ongoing work with my colleague, Diane Deulis. And this is what we're dealing with, the injection. 
the COVID-19 mRNA overlap, right? And what he literally said there is that the neuro side of this could activate some kind of an actual physical entity, smart dust or whatever we're talking about. I mean, guys, this is, this is the Lieberlanger overlap. It's what we're talking about here. National Defense University. And what we can also do is recognize that there are existing microbiologicals that can be harnessed to then induce the effects. We can also engage certain chemicals that way. What we want here is a morbidity factor, not necessarily a mortality factor. I want to make people sick. Mm-hmm. And what I do here is the virus is not necessarily the bug. The virus is what I put over the Internet. Let me show you how I can crash a system pretty easily. So what he's saying is he puts out something that, ha- that causes illness, right? But it's not super deadly. Does that sound very familiar? And then by using propaganda and social media, can use the hypochondriacs to drive the narrative or people that follow along anyway. I affect key individuals here, here, and here. And then I take another community in the back of the room. I affect key individuals there. And then I take another community. I affect key individuals there. I think two-party paradigm leaders, pundits, screamers on the left and the right. And then I do what every good attributional group does. I beat my chest and take credit for it. And what I put out over the internet is, this is a virus, a bacteria, an agent that I have infiltrated into your fill-in-the-blank. I say it's a weapon. Think, think China didn't let us know, right? China did X, Y, and Z. Weapon of mass destruction. And what I tell you it's going to do is it's going to produce paranoia, anxiety, and sleeplessness. What I've just done is I've recruited every paranoid hypochondriac to think that they have whatever that is. Long COVID. I've used salient and sentinel cases, and I create essentially a legion of what's known as the worried well. They now flood emergency rooms. They flood Mm -hmm. their clinicians. The CDC responds back and says, no, 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 there is no such a thing. And I've created a schism of trust between. Don't forget what happened right in the beginning. WHO speaks up and said there is no evidence of this, right? It's exactly what happened. The population in the polis. It's both a short and a long war's effect. Moreover, I can create particular neuromicrobiologicals that may have a much longer duration of action. For example, modified Ziggy virus. And what I can then do is, as a consequence of that, is I can affect subsequent generations who incur a public health morbidity and mortality effect that then creates an increased economic and perhaps social burden. Long war scenario. If I wanted to do something that's a little bit more proximate, I can utilize nanoparticulate matter. Now, we can utilize nanoscience to create much better drugs to get them where they got to go in the brain. I can create nanoscience and nanotechnology to be able to escort certain drugs across the proliferant barrier, which is the blood-brain barrier and blood cent- uh, cerebrospinal fluid barrier. So I get these things where they got to go. So you mentioned the Zika virus, right? In 2011 discussion, like so, so many years later, right? That ended up being the Zika encephali- encephalitis discussion in Brazil and elsewhere. They're, they're working with these things. We should consider that. But I can also utilize nanoparticulate matter in a very indiscriminate way. The idea here is that I can get something called high CNS aggregation material that is essentially invisible to the naked eye and even to most scanners because it is so small that it selectively goes through most levels of filter porosity. Like your face mask. Exactly like your face mask. These are then inhaled either through the nasal mucosa or absorbed through the... Microcephaly. Thank you. I was conflating the encephalitis from the COVID injection discussion. Yeah, thank you, Katie. So microcephaly was the Zika overlap there. But yeah, th- so we think about the mask point. You know, what he's talking about is something that is designed to be so small, which means they know that, that it will go right through your filter of your mask and so on. They know this stuff. It's basic understanding. They just manipulated all the people that didn't know any better or people that were already going to worry, people that follow along anyway. That's, they've, this is a big social engineering game for these people. Oral mucosa, 
They have high CNS affinity. They clump in the brain or in the vasculature, mm. and they create essentially what looks like a hemorrhagic diathesis, in other words, a hemorrhage predisposition or a clot predisposition in the brain. Right. What I've done is I've created a stroking agent, and it's very, very difficult to gain attribution to do that. I can use... So just so you hear what he's saying there, I mean, guys, this is he might as well literally be outlining the COVID-19 illusion. <laughs> the idea of co- you, you create something that causes a blood clot or, I don't know, a heart problem, myocarditis, like a coronavirus it induces myocarditis. Have we heard that before? Because it's, it, unless you know what you're looking for, it's, it's impossible to know what caused it. Like, think about that. And th- th- that, that's at least one point that suggests that maybe this wasn't meant to be as big as it was supposed to be. I don't know. Because that would then undermine the reality of trying to hide it. But the either, either way, the point is we know they worked on this stuff. And he's literally outlining in 2017 the reality of creating something that causes those clots because it's impossible to find. That on a variety of levels, from the individual to the group, highly disruptive. And in fact, this is one of the things that has been entertained and examined to some extent by my right. colleagues in NATO, NATO and to those who are working on the worst use of neurobiological sciences to create populational disruption. Very, very. Who, who do, who's doing that? Right. Remember, he works for the Pentagon. Population disruption. Like, so either you're openly saying that what you're doing is actively undermining this, the, not the government, but the individual civilians and manipulating their lives to, to affect in some way the government, which is a crime, or you're doing it to us. Like, I, I shouldn't need to explain that. We all need to be, like, everybody needs to be able to admit today that this is what they're doing to us. Actively breaking the law against anybody, anywhere they want, as long as they can get away with it. And they are actively doing whatever they can to you to control your lives as long as they can get away with it. And even then, they don't care. This is the current reality of our world. If we can't accept this, then we're never going to change it. These governments, and it doesn't mean every single individual throughout it, but as a body, I mean, it's, it's like trying to pretend what's going on in Gaza is not exactly what it looks like. We just need to stop being childish about this and stop listening to people whose entire work is invested in maintaining the illusion. Whether that's politics, whether that's the, the coverage of the two-party paradigm, people are invested in the lie. It's a classic concept. You're worried about the potential for these nanoparticulate agents to be CNS aggregating agents to cause neural disruption either as hemorrhagic and vascular disruptors or as actual neural network disruptors because they interfere with the network properties of various neural nodes and systems within the brain. And I think this is where it gets into like the behavioral aspect. Then I get to the area of devices. And this in many ways is going to be less than definitive. The reason for this is this is highly evolving and I think is limited only in certain cases by context of imagination. Hmm. What are the devices? Well, I have them here for you here. You have neurosensory mobilizing agents. And to some extent, some of these have already been used. Uh, Things like high-output sensory stimulators that can be administered from unmanned vehicles, drones, insect-borne, or uh, larger-scale, macro-scale vehicles such as tanks, cars, etc. These are sensory mobilizing agents that use high electromagnetic pulse energy that may also utilize high levels of sound, high levels of of light energy. Now, this gets really interesting in regard to what I showed you a moment ago. The Lieber-Langer work and the concept of using light to, uh, to influence the brain, using mag- magneto- magnetogenetics, right? These are all the same kind of different angles from the same kind of work, and this is what we're kind of getting into here. And this is what they were working on that overlaps with the same work that ties into the injection conversation. They disrupt neurological sensory function. Already being used, now they're being developed with higher specificity. The idea of intracranial pulse stimulators take this one step further. Now the idea is to utilize direct electromagnetic pulses to be able to disrupt neural network aggregation. Right. 
There have been some animal studies that have been done that look at the viability of electromagnetic pulses across various distances to essentially disrupt the network properties of the brain and create confusional models. So these are both individual and group disruptors. You also have the idea of the altered reality tactics that is primarily used in irregular warfare. And here, once again, when we understand the, the construct of the way neural networks operate, they operate by key controller and influencing nodes that interact with other neural networks within the brain electrochemically. If we can utilize transcranial mechanisms to be able to disrupt this, what we can do is we can create disrupted neural network aggregation and literally disrupt people's sense of time, space, and place. And there have been a number of experiments that have examined this. That's more terrifying. in the medical context of looking at how we can try to control epilepsy. And we do recognize that these things are viable, although they have not yet been translated directly into operational use. Oh my God. So ask the simple question about how many of these things we're dealing with in the world are actually just being, we're being experimented on. Right? What about things like, we just jokingly talked about this in a way, Mandela effect or these different conversations. Certainly could just be conspiracy theory or nonsense, or we could be being manipulated, right? I mean, there's so many, the fact that people dismiss things like this without any thought because you're supposed to is so insulting and childish. So many things that most people smugly dismiss because you're a conspiracy theorist turn out to be true. So many things throughout history. My point is simply that there's so many different examples of what this stuff is. Even talking about like the biological problems, different things, the different side effects or different illnesses like who knows the reality is that there's so many different ways we could be manipulated and all they're telling you here is that they've been toying with this for a really long time even though we have the proof that they have tested on us relentlessly throughout our history of this country but they have been entertained for certain forms of special operations and irregular warfare and so they're on the palette of possibility although not near-term probability if we go one step further, I think it becomes important for us to also understand that we can utilize devices slightly differently. This is the idea of the sort of non-human cyborg. And I don't use that word in any way colloquially. I mean it literally. The DARPA beetle. A cybernetic organism that is an integration between a biological system and a technological system. The pioneering work in this field was done years ago. It was Delgado's work with deep brain stimulation in a bowl. He utilized deep brain stimulating electrode coupled to a remote device, got into the bull arena, induced the bull to charge, pressed the button, and arrested the bull's forward motion. Stopped, poised right before him. See what I can do through the use of cybernetic interactive systems, remotely controlled brain systems, brain interfacing. God. Could we now utilize that on different scales? Well, we're not talking about dropping electrodes into people's heads. Despite what people will say, this is not a large-scale program to infiltrate the population with indwelling electrodes. With all due respect to Elon Musk, I think the actual translation of that into a broad-scale event within the population, as it very, very least speaks of the fantasy, if not fictional, and I think in many cases is very, very difficult to translate. Isn't that interesting? Look at Elon Musk making an appearance in 2017. What a big, what a coincidence, right? Electrodes into people's heads, despite what people will say. Induced the bull to charge, pressed the button, and arrested the bull's forward motion. Stopped, poised right before him. Live, live animal manipulation. I mean, this has been going on a long time. That's what we just showed you, the internal brain, and not, not just biosurveillance, but control. That's what they're talking about all the way back then, and... God only knows what's happening to us right now. That's my overlap. I've been saying that for the longest time. 
the work was developing in that direction, which then kind of dovetailed into this COVID-19 mRNA platform discussion, which is one part of it, but it is not the full picture. And they're still working. See what I can do through the use of cybernetic interactive systems, remotely controlled brain systems, brain interface. Could we now utilize that on different scales? Well, we're not talking about dropping electrodes into people's heads. Despite what people will say, this is not a large-scale program to infiltrate the population with indwelling electrodes. With all due respect to Elon Musk, I think the actual translation of that into a broad-scale event within the population, as at very, very least, speaks of the fantasy, if not fictional, and I think in many cases is very, very difficult to translate. Okay, so just hear what he's saying, guys. It's not real. Not really. I mean, the technology is definitely there, and that's definitely. But my, I think this has gone far beyond, like we're saying from the beginning, video cameras and late. Like, th- this is beyond our understanding of the kind of conversation we're having about you know putting electrodes in the brain and controlling the output. I mean, not beyond understanding necessarily. I do think that in the in the real understanding how it works sense, but talking about remote control, we know what that is, right? We, we've talked. We, we mentioned a couple of them: magnet, magnetogenetics. Right. This is using external stimuli to manipulate your body or the body of an animal or in other aspects of it. You know, as we talked about biosurveillance of what you're seeing, what your your bio data, what you're feeling, your heart rate, like these kind of things from a remote control concept. This is 2017. So what he's saying is all due respect, Elon Musk, like that's fantasy, not because it's not possible, not because they don't have a very clear use for it but because they've already gone leaps and bounds beyond that. And yet here you still have Musk acting like we're just about to get it done. Right? We're getting, we're, they're, they're dangling the cat toy in front of us over here while they're building a prison around us. That's ultimately what I see happening. Will key individuals get certain implants? Yes, I believe they will. Will key individuals also be able to get the benefits of translational neurosurgery that decrease some of the risks and burdens? Yes, they will. Will this be widely seen as a mechanism of individual and crowd control? No, it will not, at least not in the immediate future. But what has gone from the drawing board to the reality is this, the use of neural interfacing and physiological interfacing through the idea of remote-controlled small-scale systems to be able to modify the behavior of non-human animals. Right. You love how they say that, right? If, if they can manipulate non-human, it can manipulate you too. So let's just go ahead and be honest and call it animals. Because all, all he's saying that for is because we're not supposed to manipulate humans. But obviously that is part of this. Or in my, I would argue the entire point. Why, what's the point of manipulating the way a bull moves? Right? That's a precursor to manipulating you. For the benefit of society. A variety of scales. Small mammals and increasingly the use of insects. And on top of that, realize that does in fact mean that there are ways, literal, provable, technological ways that you could remote control an animal or a bird or an insect and relay that information back. That this, this is 2015. This is neural recording. This is about injecting something in your brain that could then transmit this information, not, not to a remote location. This is flexible electronics into the brain for the same point. When you read through this, it's the same conversation, but way more advanced. And they're talking about doing this kind of thing, as an, and again, from the physical level. On a variety of scales, small mammals, and increasingly the use of insects. The pioneering work was done by DARPA, something called the DARPA beetle or the DARPA fly. 
And more recently, an independent, non-DARPA-funded commercial enterprise, calls itself Dragonfly, has been able to utilize a combined set of techniques, both direct neural stimulation through the use of what we call macro technology and optogenetic control of key neuron firing patterns to be able to direct the wing beats and pulses and, as a consequence, directionality of a dragonfly. And characteristically, an insect of about that big works quite well. Right. That's exactly what we're talking about. Weaponizing brain science, neuroweapons. He's speaking with uh, the, this is on the platform, Homeland Defense and Security Information Analysis Center. And this is just another podcast with James that goes over this information. You can read for yourself. Here is another one from the United States Naval Academy where they're talking about this exact stuff in November 2020, right before all of this. And interestingly thinking about what we're talking about, the timing of the experimentation, Pfizer, COVID injections, all this different stuff. And the reality of this conversation, knowing that Israel in particular, but a lot of places do this, but Israel in regard to Gaza have always used Palestinians to test their weapons and then even sold them as battle tested because of it. It's, It's not even an open secret. It's just open. So now we have Pfizer, as we just discussed, experimenting in Gaza, right? Using a Pfizer product in regard to something they claim they're trying to stop, which, by the way, is a fungus. Interesting tie back to the fungicide appeal conversation. But the point is that they're, it's a, it's a Candida albicon, I believe, or it's Oris. I think it's, I forget which one it was, but the one, the one that circulates in hospitals that they're claiming is happening there. Now, my point is just simply that who knows what else is happening here? And I think we need to start asking and really being able to, uh, to accept the possibility that these people are capable of doing just that for no other reason. Now, we've talked about in the past the COVID mag- magnetogenetic ferritin vaccines. This is what I want to kind of end with. We'll see how much we get to. Biodigital convergence, we've talked about a lot. And this goes back a long way. This is the conversation of, as Klaus Schwab will tell you, convergence of your biological, digital, and, and all these and converging these things together. This is technocracy. But the magnetogenetic part of it is one of the earlier steps in all of this. But it's using magnetics, magnetogenetics to manipulate brains and activities and thought process. And it's, it's, it's another part of the same conversation. Now, optogenetics is what he was discussing predominantly and ultimately we've talked about in the past. Light control. That's what he's talking about, the, the neuron synapses of biological systems. Again, that's what the parts we got into a second ago in regard to, I don't want to move the window in case something freaks out on me again, but. Researchers turned mosquitoes into flying vaccinators. We talked about already. Just thinking about the mosquito point he just made, the dragonfly, the beetle. Just throwing this out there. The reality that they've already, in a way, used this. Now, this is, this is the genetically modified overlap, but it's still something in the same vein of conversation. Now, we're not even getting into whether they're complete nano, uh, you know, little robots, which is also real or actual bugs that are simply controlled to be able to surveil. Like, think about even what we're saying out loud right now. To some people, no matter what you show them, this is going to be conspiracy theory. Even though literally DARP has created it and he literally talks about it. Like, it's hilarious. But think about that and using that to relay information. Okay? So take this to an extent further. This is 2010, right? But we've talked about this all the way into recently. This was about the, the spraying of pesticide also, but the GM mosquitoes, the flying vaccinators, and how this is a real conversation. It's been going on right up until today. Now, what is that doing? Is that, being, is that able to relay de- genetic information from, from people that it bites? Is it, it's clearly arguing they can vaccinate you. Is that, a, is that your choice? Like, there's so much of this that goes right over people's heads. They just don't want to hear it. 
So on that note, let's talk about the nanotechnology side of it, which is where I think we're obviously already in. That's happening. We're long past that point. The neuroweaponry side of it is also happening for a long time, but I believe the how all these come together is sort of where this is going. Using these things, and again, possibly happening on a mass scale, manipulating the way people act, and experimenting in that way, monitoring in that way, and deciding how this can be used, whether against adversaries or against <laughs> adversaries <laughs> locally. But let's not go. Let's go back to twenty two two thousand two where we talked about this in 2021, where the government documents that are already, were already present that you can read, I'll show you, discussed the 20-year plan to alter evolution with nanotechnology. We've gone over this in depth. Converging technologies for improving human performance in 2002. And the whole point was they're predicting within 20 years that this would change evolution. It's an open conversation. We've gone over this in many, there's actually another article as well that discusses the exact plan. The point is you can read through this. You can watch our episode. It's all very public. Klaus Schwab literally talks about this exact thing. Nanotechnology, biotechnology, information technology, and cognitive technology converging. James Corbett talked about this in regard to an other doc, a different document in the same vein, the biodigital convergence that was discussed by the uh, Canadian government exploring biodigital convergence. And what he discusses is the bombshell document reveals the true agenda. And you can read this. I mean, it's right on the surface. In the coming years, biodigital technologies could be woven into our lives in the way that digital technologies are now. Biological and digital systems are converging and could change the way we work, live, and even evolve as a species. I mean, it's right on the surface. It gets much more worrisome than that, but you can read through it. Now, I want to play this for a second, too, just to show you again where this, the time, this, this is from nine years ago. And this is talking about the kind of stuff we're actually dealing with back then. But are, you can only imagine where it's at now. Again, if you're on 17, they're telling you about the dark beetle. Imagine where it's actually at. Now, this was the MakerCon, basically a, a, a symposium about technology. Specifically, he's speaking on the inevitability of smart dust in 2000, what, nine years ago. Start right here. Way. Buttons. Buttons are a great hack. It's a computing behind those interfaces. The, the devices, the computing behind those interfaces aren't going to go away. They're going to just become invisible. We're still essentially the banging the rocks together stage for this sort of stuff. And you haven't really seen anything yet. So this is closer to the end of the vision. This is this powder-sized chip, um, and that's a salt crystal. So this is a small thing. Is something called the Mu chip from Hitachi. It's the smallest commercially available RFID system in the world and can be pulse-powered by radio waves. It doesn't require a battery. You can literally scatter this stuff like dust. Or and, and it runs on your body's energy or motion at this stage, or at least that's what we're being told. And it's, 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 it's small. You can scatter it like dust. And think about the timing of when this is being used. And then ask yourself, how in the world this conversation has progressed so far, so far beyond the physical, and yet we're going to pretend that this hasn't been used already? It's not literally coursing through your veins? I'm not saying I know that. But think about that. I, how is that not possible at this point? Because we're talking about a smart dust. Think about the idea of nanotechnology, smart dust, geoengineering, the injections with nanotech and all these different things, the spike, pro like the, the, um, the impossibility. I mean, if we know at this point that glyphosate is literally everywhere, and again, for those that don't think that's true, do your, your due diligence. 
this entire planet has been drenched in this stuff. If you can find it in the urine of people in parliament, in the clothes you're wearing, and in organic things wherever you look, it's over, guys. Glyphosate is everywhere. And that's crazy to me, especially since Stephanie Seneff, PhD, argues it was essentially a primer for what was hurting people in the COVID injection. But on top of that, it's an endocrine disrupting chemical, which affects your hormones. I mean, my God. The point is, just think about where we actually are with this, if this was what was going on nine years ago. And this is at the stage they were at then. And we're being told about then, so they're probably 10 years ahead of that at this point. I know people will dismiss this because anytime you get ahead of where we currently are, somebody will cry conspiracy theory, even though the very statement of that in response to something they don't know is a sign of ignorance. Whether or not they're right about it being fake, it's still a sign of ignorance. The point is, this is something, it's in real, at the time, real time. This is real. It's being done and it's being utilized by governments. And if you want to make that make sense for you in a sense that aligns with your political understanding, maybe it's only the bad guys of the world doing it. Whoever you picture when that word is said, still something that's real. Like it seems to make sense for people when you can say China does it. They go, oh, that it's real. But if you say your government does it, you go, oh, fake news. <laughs> Well, either way, it's something that's probably out there and it's universal if it's smart dust and that kind of discussion. This stuff terrifies me. Embed it into a sheet of paper. And you know what the really interesting thing about this technology is? This was commercially released 10 years ago. So this is, the video's nine years old. This was released 10 years before that. Right? So what, 2003, four? It was being done then. I just think about where we are right now in 2023. So the inevitability of smart dust. So what is smart dust? Well, smart dust, of course, isn't a new concept. It's the originated with DARPA back in the 90s. Of course it did. And it's general purpose computing, sensors, wireless network, networking, all bundled up into millimeter scale sensor modes, drifting in the air currents, flex of computing power settling on your skin, ingested, monitoring you inside and out. And if you don't think that's possible, this is the Michigan Micromote. It's a cubic millimeter in size. And uh, in deference to the speaker before, yes, it runs an ARM processor. Your own body's energy, right, can monitor you inside and out. 20 years ago, the size of a tenth of a piece of paper or smaller. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I mean, think about the implications to what we're currently dealing with. Um, it's a tiny computer and it features data pro uh, processing, data storage, wireless comms, and it's probably wireless as close comms. to the true smart dust vision from the early DARPA days as we've come so far. They're designed to harvest energy from the environment around them and to communicate via mesh network. And again, yeah, by mesh network, that's exactly the point about the larger point about how this then meshes with each other. Internet of bodies, they've all talked about these things, guys. That's a real concept. We're currently in the Internet, the Internet of Things, they're they're, and we're, it, we're overlapping into the Internet of Nano Things, but that then intertwines with the Internet of Bodies. These are all statements coming from the WEF and different comp groups in that realm, which means that once we in inject nanotechnology in our bodies, we can then mesh the nanotechnology, so we're now in the Internet of Nano Things. Well, ultimately, they mean that in any sense, the nanotechnology exists, so it could be your nanotechnology in other things other than your body. My point, though, is that that is obviously part of that. And that becomes the, the meshed concept to where you can then, you know, they'll tell you we can monitor your heartbeat, we can make sure you're not going to die, we see cancers coming, but they can also then kill you that day if they decide to, right? And you should not dismiss this kind of stuff. We and this is where we get into this point, which we're going to get into in a second, about the dual-use tech.
right? And that's what this is, where it literally discusses, well, you can, you can reverse sickle cell production in human cells, or you can kill the cell, right? It's the choice of the, of the programming. That is dual use. That's what we're dealing with. And of course, the energy is the key problem with this. Can make the computing small, the energy is hard. Anyone that's actually taken a laptop or their cell phone apart will know that. I think that's in generally that's the most that's the most important part, guys. And it's a great whole thing. You should watch the whole symposium. But the reality is that this is 20 years ago. Didn't need any other technology, didn't need any other energy, just your body's energy. It could it was two-way comms that could send out, you know, at that point, just re relay information that way. But it's also literally the size of dust. And now 20 years later, I think we already know what's happening. I think it's always a foregone conclusion. And it doesn't have to be the government that you think is the good guy. Why wouldn't it be anybody else or all of them together? I just, all I'm asking is that people consider these possibilities, right? And then ask yourself why in the world they're getting rid of one of the filters that's able to filter some of the things that are probably being used against you. What a big surprise. Of course, then using the insecticide, fungicide, rodenticide act to stop it, even though under that same category is the appeal that they're letting you eat. I mean, it's, they lie about everything. They're going to get caught at some point. So this is what we've talked about many times, right? Just to show you the current, I think, iteration of what at the very least we can prove is being used. And that's the mRNA platform technology, the, the conversation of the lipid nanoparticles and how this protein delivery structure system based on plug and play technology is definitely part of this. As this person points out, and this is the article you can read for yourself, a team of researchers has used lipid nanoparticles loaded with mRNA. You know, the same thing, understand that's mod RNA. That's just what people use in shorthand, which we shouldn't. It's not the same thing. Messenger RNA is organic, modified, and, and when methyl pseudouridine modified RNA, which is what it actually is, is not. And in fact, that's what causes it to last longer and continue the production of the spike protein. All the things they swore up and down are still not happening to some people's, you know, if you listen to some people, but have been proven. But it says they load these to non-invasively and selectively trigger cell death in mice, in their stem cells. And in a completely separate and second experiment, they use the same process to remove a sickle cell gene. That is dual use technology. It's very simple. This is what it looks like. It can be used as a weapon or it can be used to help. It all simply depends on how the mod RNA is programmed. And again, I said, which is actually N1-methylsuridine modified RNA. But as I always include in this, because I think it's an interesting kind of segue in the whole process. And I said, and this is why we have peer-reviewed science that's now finding that it is, very, it is the actual mRNA platform itself, in part causing the myocarditis. The lipid nanoparticle mod RNA delivery system, like discussed above. Was it programmed to do this? Or was that one of their many mistakes? And let's not remember that Ralph, let's remember that Ralph Barrick from North Carolina University, Chapel Hill, was funded by the U.S. government to literally create myocarditis inducing coronaviruses. This is the mod RNA platform. Now, the question I asked there is, is, is this the weaponization of that research? I was going to try and grab that for you real quick. Man, I talked about a lot in this one. Wait a minute. How oh, is that not in there? It is somewhere. Oh, here it is. Here we go. I just want to show you the actual word. Like, just in case there's people out there that want to pretend like this is, you know, fake or whatever. This is under Ralph 
uh, Barrick's actual, his, his own curriculum. We discussed this with David Martin as well. And there's other things in here that I actually forget what that was in the moment that I found really important. But this is the point I want to show you right now. Just in the 90s, coronavirus-induced myocarditis in rabbits. This is an NIH-funded program in regard to inducing myocarditis using a coronavirus. I just think that's staggeringly stupid and obvious. And I said, and then after that research, the U.S. government funded efforts to weaponize this coronavirus to induce myocarditis. Well, after, after they did that, they then went on to try to aerosolize it. Again, the documents are in this show. And to make it a self-spreading concept in the bats and the caves of China. This is discussed publicly. And this also overlapped with the work of Charles Lieber and Robert Langer, which overlaps with the larger point of today. Langer later went on to become the co-founder of Moderna, where the lipid nanoparticle delivery system went into effect as none other than the COVID-19 injection. Lieber, of course, used that system, the lipid nanoparticle system, to create virus-sized transistors in 2011. Lieber said this innovation was important because it indicated that when a man-made structure is as small as a virus or bacteria, it can behave the way biological structures do. And I've openly wondered since 2020 whether that, in fact, thing, that thing might, in fact, be COVID-19. So Sandra Whedon points out, as we mentioned before, and this is actually a new point, by the way. This is from just, this is from yesterday. Deadly virus could lead to heart failure pandemic. That's actually a new point they're making. Really, like, and it was so crazy about this. And 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 this is while the. the as she writes, while the reason behind this remains unknown, it could lead to a series of heart attacks, right? You know where this goes, right? The uh, So think about the absurdity. If you literally have something you've created that, that you've worked on in the past that is a myocarditis-inducing coronavirus, then something comes out that you claim is a coronavirus that is, in fact, inducing myocarditis, and then you put out a shot with that spike protein that causes it even more. And then, of course, the argument is that that's not actually what was happening with the whatever we call the virus. But then you bump up against the next series of this where you are pointing to the same heart problems and you go, we're worried about a new thing that could cause a pandemic of heart, which is literally happening right now. They know that they're baffled by it. But then saying that we could cause the thing that's currently happening by the next problem. Like this is like, this is as bad as Israeli propaganda. It's 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 a what's the word I was using? Not reflexive, but. You're, you're instead of making it ahead of time, you're responding to things at late. But this is the secondary point to that, right? So we know that they did, in fact, make this to be able to be, you know, as it says, mRNA loaded lipid nanoparticles have been injected. But we also know that they then eventually went further very recently to try to, to aerosolize this in the exact same way. Researchers at Yale University created a new airborne method of delivery of mRNA vaccines. We've talked about this as well. A nasal injection for mRNA. So the point is, it's obvious this could be done in a way that is aerosolized already. Now, Penn State, and this is from the May 26th of this year, created the first protein-based nanocomputing agent. So just piece all of these things together in your mind. mRNA delivering lipid nanoparticles that can be aerosolized, that are inducing heart problems, that are, you know, that by the way, the end result they claim of that even working is producing a protein. Now, if we know that we're talking about something that could be engineered to create a nanocomputing agent, which, by the way, could ultimately end up being something like that. Oh, I wanted to get to the. There, that shot right there. That. Right. So my point is that we're talking about stuff. That are protein based nanocomputing agents. And 
20 years ago, they were doing something like this, not protein-based. So consider this, but now organic, or rather specifically biological. You're dealing with a biological product that has been evolved from this early stage of the smart dust, I guess, again, not the right word, but like a robot kind of sense, technology, technology. So just think about that for a second. And then we go through this whole process of injecting people with what I think is more of a primer, right? The body's now prepared for this. As we've talked about the secondary concept, here's your new update. Now we've made this thing to update it to where you can produce this protein. That's why I played that very clip in the beginning. Remember this? I've played this so many times. This is before COVID. Forbes and Pfizer. Wall Street and biotechnology companies have been very excited about this idea. And what essentially it is, is trying to hack the cells in the body in order to make them into drug factories. Right. So if you can pack the cells in your body to make them in drug factories, which they can then be primed later to produce whatever they want, that's not a conspiracy theory. It's right there. Openly. Now, of course, you could argue they only do it for the right reasons, for safety of you and your family, despite all the evidence to that being fake. But, you know, you can decide forever you want. The point is, it's obvious that this stuff could be in this exact vein. Now, Christy Laura Grace also points out that mature sperm cells have the spontaneous ability to take up exogenous DNA. We've been talking all over the place about the DNA contamination or just the fact that it's been shown that these things very real, in a real sense, do uh, was the right word, not contaminate, but, you know, manipulate your DNA, the genome specifically. And it says they contain, uh, the vaccines contain DNA plasmid, no lipid nanoparticle transfection agent needed right into the nuclei. It's, it's a PubMed study. You can read for yourself. Regulation of foreign DNA uptake by mouse sperm, basically. The point is that now we're at a point where now you're you're understanding that this then becomes something, as Peter McCullough pointed out, Dr. Peter McCullough, I believe even the late Arna Burkhart made a very clear case about sperm, that this then is generational. So ask the question, is this just about some kind of an immunity, if you even think that's what this is about? Or are we literally passing down protein-based nanocomputing agents? that are smart dust level biosurveillance kind of concepts. Like I'm just spitballing here, guys. The point though, is that this is very real. And if all we're really talking about is the ability for this to translate to then have that ability, I mean, this gets really, really deep and concerning. And just going back to an old show, this is from 2020, no, February 24th. Studies confirm coronavirus is weaponized. And this goes back to the conversation from Dr. Francis Boyle, the drafter of the weapon, the Biowarfare Act that the U.S. government still uses, despite the fact they call him a conspiracy theorist. And just as a quick, interesting point, I just scrolled up to the video real quick, and this is from 2020. The point is how it's been weaponized, which I believe goes back to the origin point of this, starting this conversation from COVID side of it, but how we know this goes back a long way and how long like was 2020 for really just the initiation of stuff like this, right? The discussion of these converging of all these things. Bio-digital convergence. But then just as a quick side note, I scrolled down to what I was like, what was I talking about? Oh, I shouldn't say 19. I forgot to change that back then. But 2020, what was I talking about? Well, I was talking about COVID-19 and Assange, but look at this. I was also talking about Gaza. Video of Israeli bulldozer dragging Palestinian body in Gaza sparks global outrage. See my point? This stuff has been going on for a long time. Nobody cared back then. Not 
like they do now is my point. Or a lot of them didn't. Then in general, we talked with David Martin, Dr. David Martin, about the bigger point, the COVID illusion and the criminal World Health Organization driving it. Now, not just the injection, not just the deadly aspect of what we're dealing with here, but think about this on the bigger scale we're discussing today. And now listen to what David Martin said. We should be having a public dialogue, and it should be something that rises to the level of legislation. We should not allow the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Defense to allocate funding to amplify these agents so that allegedly we can study them in the case that they fall into the hands of bad people. Because the evidence has shown us that the bad people who actually have unleashed these pathogens since 1991, and by the way, if you go to Miscellaneous Memorandum 7 and other documents, we can go back to the 1950s. The bad people who unleash these things on the population are us. It is the U.S. who's doing it. But I've been doing this now for 20 years. And, and what, one of the things I find frustrating is people pretend like there's this whodunit kind of gumshoes sleuthing required to go through and find all the stuff that's the evidence. Um, it, it doesn't actually take any creativity or effort. This thing was done in plain sight. It was engineered in plain sight. It was publicly announced. Um, by 2016, we even knew that it was the Wuhan variant that was the one that they had chosen. Um, like, there's nothing left to the imagination. We right. knew that it was WIV1 poised for human emergence, right? This is not a, I wonder if it could be a bat and a pangolin going into a bar in Wuhan one night and getting it on and boom, out comes baby COVID. No, we knew in 2016 that the Wuhan Institute of Virology Virus 1 model was the one that they had selected for the weapon. And so, you know, you sit back and you, you say, well, how is it that in the face of such egregiously public information, we still are asking questions about motivation, about whether this was from nature or whatever it is? Listen, people, they said in their own words, this was to hype a drug to get the public to accept something that without terror, the public would have never agreed to. That's their words, not mine. Mm -hmm. And when you have a world in which, as you have on the screen right now, they actually stated outright biohacking, synthetic coronaviruses, biological warfare enabling technologies. You know, you don't have to interpret that. That doesn't require some spin. When you say biological warfare enabling technology, you are not talking about something that is an innocent oops, who could have known, who could have seen. It is actually a declaration of war against humanity, and we have it in black and white. That's what it was, by the way. I've just grabbed it on the sheet we're looking at here. It literally says, guys, right here in this discussion on Ralph Barrick's curriculum, where they're discussing the coronavirus-induced myocarditis, synthetic coronaviruses, biohacking, biological warfare-enabling technologies, including DARPA, under Ralph Barrick's curriculum. It's just, it's, just, it's just his point. Now, to those in the chat who are arguing that they don't feel like they can trust him, that's your choice. That's your prerogative. But good thing the facts don't require trust, right? That's the point I would make. I get it that people are very concerned, and we should be, about how many people could lie, how many people are will use the truth to get close and then you know mislead. That we that's always you should worry about that with me or anybody, guys. Question everything. 
But the point is, as always, whether or not you trust David or anybody else, the facts don't require trust. You can prove what he's saying. So it doesn't matter. I mean, you can consider whether he might be using the truth. Sure. But to then ignore the truth because David says it, that's a problem for me. And I think that happens far too much in the community that we're talking about. But I'm, I'm not suggesting that's what you guys are saying, but just consider that, right? That, that, that we have a lot of this evidence here like this that is, there's just no ignoring this, right? But let's finish with the point about the kind of an inter, inner between step, like a, the next step, I argue, of where the injection side of this goes. But then we're seeing that begin to meet with where they're already driving this other side of the conversation. So I've talked about this going back to 2016. Genetically engineered magnetoprotein remotely controls brain and behavior. This, this is from The Guardian. It's terrifying. And this is very real. And you can read it for yourself. Oh, look, they put it on. Of course they did. Wasn't on this before. I haven't. You could look it up on the Wayback Machine. It's easy. But the point was that they've used ferritin protein in, in these two, and it literally the simplest point is to remotely control just like we were just talking about, right? The same conversation. Where was that? Did I close that? I guess I did. Same conversation, this guy. Remote control. And using this to, to from, from, you know, both remote control, but also to remotely relay biological data. And yes, this does overlap with the same people we're talking about. So that became, uh, that in general is concerning and it can be used on any, you know, a human, an animal, same concept. And we discussed this in 2023, one of the many times we discussed this exact point using the same image in this, where we discussed the, what I call the deadly lipid nanoparticle spike protein design. So that's in general. That's the, that's the point about not just the platform, but these two things together being just especially dangerous, but also the new modified RNA ferritin nanoparticle universal flu injection. Sounds crazy, right? Well, guess what? It's almost here and literally being made right now. April 20th, 2023. Universal influenza candidate vaccine performs well in phase one trial. This is the ferritin one we're talking about. Known as H1SSF, the influenza H1 hemoglutinin stabilized stem ferritin nanoparticle vaccine. Interesting how they don't make that forwardly clear. When you read about this in corporate news articles, they skip right over all of those words. I wonder why. This is terrifying to me. Now, that just because it has ferritin does not therefore mean that's, that this is going to happen. My point is that if you read these and understand how this works and realize where this technology is literally stemming from. The universal concept, the pan ferritin coronavirus vaccines, it's all stemming from the same tech and the same people, including Bob Langer and Moderna, who worked on exactly what I'm concerned about. This exact conversation. So all I'm saying is that this should be concerning to us for many reasons, not just because of these things being deadly. So here, for three days ago, is the current work of the pan-coronavirus ferritin protein universal injection. Not over, not even for coronavirus. We will discuss, it says, the feasibility of the progress toward the ultimate goal of creating a pan-coronavirus vaccine that can protect against infection and disease by all members of the coronavirus family. Somehow magically just works for any new variants and whatever else that pops up, assuming that's even real, and that probably adds to the point to where why people think that it's not. And rightly so, consider that. It's a valid vein of thought that is definitely has some merit to whether we should question these things. I definitely still feel like there is confusion on both sides. They don't like that on either side, which is typically where we end up. Two-party paradigms, illusion, they all hate us, right? That's how it works. 
Yeah, even if I'm wrong, by the way, it, the point is about standing by what you believe in, regardless of pressure from all sides or any one side. In this case, I get attacked from everybody. You think virology's? I don't. I don't. I don't know. My point is, I don't think we anybody understands the true point of all this, or the the the. the, the I think all sides are missing something. Is the better way to put it? But this thing is being worked on right now and definitely includes exactly what we're talking about. And there's, there's multiple variations of it as well. It says nanoparticles are an interesting way. They say this, by the way, nanoscale particulate structures that mimic the structural features of natural viruses. That's strange. Now, I guess they could just mean nanoparticles in the context of this article and conversation, but nanoparticles in general are just nano-sized particles. It doesn't have to be a, a virus or a robot. It could just be a piece of something that's so tiny that it's nanoparticle. So it's weird that they say it like that, but it's important to include that in this point, the virus size transistor conversation. I mean, it's exactly what we're talking about here, really. Nanoparticles that mimic the structural features of natural viruses. Well, guys, that's Charles Lieber, as I just read to you a second ago. Saying when it acts, when a man-made structure is as small as a virus or bacteria, it can behave the way biological structures do. Harvard Magazine, 2011, talking about the work of Charles Lieber, who, by the way, was arrested in the beginning of all this because he was working with China and people he was with were trying to smuggle genetic material into China from Beth Israel Hospital. But we don't talk about all that. We just pretend that he's like no prison time and no real problems. And, and by the way, that was the thing I showed you before. This is his work. Charles Lieber, he never stopped working on the same program, even though he was being invested for treason, investigated. Does that make sense to anybody? And now he gets slapped in the wrist and he didn't even break, still working with people in China on the same work. And you could prove he never stopped from 2020 to right now. It never stopped. Does that, does that make sense to anybody? <clears throat> but he goes on to say, for example, nanoparticles have been constructed with individual or multiple versions of the full spike protein and presented in high-order antigen arrays in native-like conformations, fusing naturally occurring bacterial ferritin to antigens as a vaccine delivery platform. All about the platforms these days increases the immune response for weakly immunogenic targets and recapitulates the complex structure of tri uh, trimeric class 1 glycoproteins. This makes fair nanoparticles a promising avenue to explore the... to to explore, to generate enhanced immune responses. <clears throat> now, do you know what doesn't need an enhanced immune response? Your natural body's response. So it's interesting that we're working so hard in the direction to make this be workable when your own body has been working for humans' existence, right? It just begins, this is my point about, it's all, recreating what is currently real as the, in the technocratic vein. This is not about me enhancing humanity. It's about circumventing it. It's very obvious to me because again, ferret nanoparticles in and of themselves are not something that like all of this stuff is, they all come with their own problems in certain ways. And whether or even the other things we're talking about in regard to <clears throat> like, let's take a good example of things like Meridol cannabis where people, ridiculous people like Alex Bernison have no clue that they're wrong about how bad cannabis or how they think bad cannabis is bad. And in reality, it's in my opinion, basically benign other than the effects you would have from anything, you know, smoke in and of itself or overuse of anything. But the idea that they made something telling you it's super dangerous and bad, even though they've had medical uses of it going back to the eighties, arresting people for the same thing, the government, I mean, can literally make a product based on just pulling out the THC molecule, which hurt people. 
I mean, not because THC, but because <clears throat> they ruined something that was meant to work with your body and added things to it that, that literally hurt people. They stopped using it. While the natural version of it is still illegal. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. These people are actively trying to capitalize on profit from and circumvent all things that are naturally good for you or just natural. A group based on Duke University took a similar approach using self-assembling helicobacter polyferrit nanoparticles. Self-assembling. Great. Now we're getting into the whole possible uh, graphene oxide overlap. Now it says another ferrit nanoparticle-based vaccine is the Delta C70 ferrit and Hexapro from Stanford. Ask yourself why they're all working in the same direction for multiple locations. This is already decided, apparently. <clears throat> it is based on SAC ferritin, which displays a truncated form of the prefusion SARS-CoV-2 Wuhan H2HU1 spike on self-assembling nanoparticles. So many things to get into there, but how about we just make an interesting point about, you know, in, in the vein of whether this was all a big experiment, to see how certain things work to prime them better for the next things they're working on. Realize that, so they're talking about making this with a truncated form of the spike protein. Well, isn't it interesting that Jessica Rose and I spoke about this in regard to the blot gate discussion, and it turns out that that proved that they were accidentally creating truncated spike protein? Maybe it wasn't an accident. Maybe this was all just one massive test. I really actually think that's what makes more sense than anything. Crazy. I think that was it. There's plenty more points to make in this article, but to just kind of wrap up in general, I think we need to realize, guys, that this is something that's been worked on a long time. This goes back to 2006 towards a coronavirus-based HIV multi-gene vaccine. Interesting enough, and it says the molecular biology of coronaviruses and particular features of the human coronavirus indicate that HCOV-229E-based vaccine vectors can become a new class of highly efficient vaccines, or you work on this and it causes the very problems that you're pointing at. Human, basically the eight human dendritic cells, the DCs, it says these virus-like particles. Guys, virus-like particles, that is currently what the, this is the, the few, the, what's the right way to frame it? Like this overlaps with the virus-like transistor discussion, but the virus-like particles are like, are the, this, this is the genetically modified nanotechnology the virus I mean, I argue this is basically the next step of what Harvard, what Lieber was doing here. The biological development of the transistor version of what we're talking about. Talking about organically created, genetically modified virus-like particles that can be changed, altered, and produce what they want. That's terrifying. And it says containing, in this case, which changes based on what they train it to do tomorrow, HCOV, basically the HIV coronavirus overlap thing to the uh, HIV overlap vector RNA have the ability to transduce human dendritic cells and to mediate he uh, heterologous gene expression in all the cells. I mean, this is basically an earlier version of all the stuff we were just talking about. And then it becomes even more interesting when you realize this is always, we talked about this in February multiple times, 2022, the COVID vaccine HIV connection. <clears throat> this gets into not just the fact that they reported that the AstraZeneca version could actually cause a false positive or in some cases actual. They they disputed what it really was, version of HIV, or the conversation that there was an older uh, a use of something in the other injections that has actually been in history, uh, in past discussions from Fauci, acknowledged as something that does actually cause HIV. I mean, all these different overlaps. 
<clears throat> or next, this was one day later, the deep dive, vaccine acquired immune deficiency itself, right? So VADES and the HIV insert in SARS-CoV-2. Because realize HIV is simply a, the argument is that sort of like the SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, the lie therein, that there's also a lie between HIV and AIDS. That really what we were always dealing with was another vaccine-induced problem. And always what it really was, was an immunodeficiency, which is all, was commonly caused by vaccines. And all they did was call it the human immunodeficiency virus, as opposed to vaccine-acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, which is literally what we're dealing with on a daily basis, which is basically the same as HIV. And then one day after that, we talked about the HIV AIDS compared to SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 point. And in my opinion, guys, these might as well, might as well be the exact same thing at a different time. And just want to give a shout out to Nick Petrosky, who, who made this point, who or, uh, highlighted this, this study. And then thank you, Orwell, for sharing it with me. And, or actually, excuse me, I think it was, I think maybe they both, I forget. But thank you to all of you who are sharing great work with me. And then he also says, well, if we're dropping breadcrumbs, and he points out this interesting nugget as well. In 2001, the pathology of experimental aerosolized monkeypox virus infection. Yeah, and you see where this goes. Certain people like Dr. Boyle would tell you that's where it all comes from. Or like we just heard Dr. Martin say, it's always been the United States government. And as Mike Donio points out, do you understand the size and scale of the move from conventional therapeutic drugs to the new gene therapies that are now being unleashed? Seismic would be putting it lightly. Prior to the ideas of gene therapy, transfections, mRNA therapies, and more drugs that were synthesized in a lab and then delivered or administered to a patient. Now, the drug is literally being made in the patient's body. By hijacking their own cellular processes. There's, I can't believe anybody ever allowed this. The potential for adverse effects is off the charts, as we now know, compared to conventional drugs, despite how toxic most of them are. Point. With the advent of the new disruptive technology. Disruptive. It's the very word that he used in the presentation about neurotechnology. There was a requirement for an equally sizable crisis to gain the needed implementation by the populace. Problem, reaction, solution. There is no way that if most people truly understood what this technology was, that they would willingly accept it. No way, no how. I believe this is all very intentional and part of a much bigger plan. This is why he says it is so important for you to st start to understand science if you haven't already. Wholeheartedly agree. Can't overemphasize, he says. I don't want people to be caught off guard next time, and the best way to do that is to get ahead now. That's why they're screaming to you, don't do your own research, you conspiracy theorists. Exactly for that point. And then again, to bring it back to the original starting point, the dirty secret of Israel's weapons exports being tested on Palestinians. We know that there's Pfizer drugs being given now. We know that they've done all sorts of experimentation. God only knows what stems from there. And I'm worried that might be a point they exploit. Either way, as Aussie 17's pointing out, the world around people are beginning to push back on this. Consumers Association of Malaysia has now demanded the immediate withdrawal of all mRNA products, mRNA products, actually mod RNA products. So that might actually be an important legal point to make sure that we actually list them as mod RNA for the point. I mean, who knows which way the best way would be to go. I bet you the judges won't even know it's mod RNA, right? But it's an important distinction. As we pointed out, and it's funny how this doesn't even show it now. Is that funny? Twitter gaslighting for Celine Dion and, and COVID-19 injections? Who knows? But Celine Dion has now lost control of her muscles from her condition. 
from her, quote, condition that we don't, we're baffled about. Come on, guys. She had an autoimmune problem that we're all exploiting for something other reason. and lost control of her muscle, you know, where it looks exactly like what people have been going through since 2020 forward, you know? But we're all going to pretend like it's totally fake. And I said, baffled. Hashtag baffled. And Canada reports a 300% increase in, quote, unspecified causes of death, sparking calls for investigation. We're just baffled. Lastly, as Cat A points out, this debacle, the debacle that is the COVID shot, has given rise to a pivotal movement whereby the world is now ready to face the tragic reality of the risks associated with much bigger things than just this one injection, or rather just the bigger conversation than just one injection, which is, as she puts it, the childhood vaccination schedule. I put it as all possible vaccinations. Dr. Andrew Wakefield, for many years, and by the way, as I've always said, people will try to exploit that as, you know, it's not like I'm afraid to be called anti-anything for that matter, but my point is to make it clear, as I said with an interview I did today with Dr. Uh, Malik, who I'll put out tomorrow, hopefully, is that, you know, it's not really about being anti any It's about realizing that if what we understand about this technology is correct, as I've always said, that's a big if, because I don't believe we've been told the truth about a lot, but assuming what we've been told is correct, that the technology could potentially be utilized for positive things if the intent is good behind it, because right now it's obviously not. And then choice is paramount, is everything. Even with this, if you allow people to truly make their own choices, you know, it's about just people being responsible for their own choices. So my point in saying that with every single vaccine is because they've all come from the same people, the same intent. We should question all of this right now and question everything, including the actual technology. My point is though, we should just acknowledge that if what we understand about it is correct, it seems likely that it could be used in a way that could benefit some people given their choice to make that, you know, given them the freedom to make that choice. But it says, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, for many years, you know, this is from the Vaxxed conversation with Del Bigtree, was a lone crusader, has now been joined by some of the other more esteemed doctors and other esteemed doctors, McCullough, Corey, and so on. Between 40 and 80% of parents believe their child's autism as a result of the vaccine. He's got a new movie coming out, we should probably check out. But I wanted to play this clip for you, at least just the part of it so you can hear what he has to say. Interestingly, realizing how long people have been trying to call out this problem and think about why they were so aggressive to the revelation of the of the facts around this topic all the way back then. I think it's obvious that there was more going on here as far back as you could look. What happened with COVID is a lot of people came forward and said, a lot of experts, a lot of great people and said, wow, I'm happy about all the childhood vaccines, but this one, no, 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 this hasn't been tested. It's unsafe. It's experimental. And for those of us who'd been in this for a long time, we had to take them back over that bridge to the childhood schedule and show them what was, had been going on for many, many years in the context of every single Vaccine. I think somewhere between 40 to 80 percent, depending on the study you look at, believe that their child's autism, you know, was related to the vaccination. Are you hashtag democracy, right? It's always how that works. Vast majority of people involved in the election process don't even take part, but or rather the biggest loading lo- uh, voting block in the election are people that don't take part. And of that group, the people that the largest group, I think 44 percent, give or take every year are independent. And every year, despite both of those obvious facts, we get presented with a left and right option. And we all, or rather the screamers within the paradigm, all scream democracy because it works for them. 
sensing this, this, this seismic shift, I believe, is going on with doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough. I mean, not just any doctor, sort of like you, an expert in his field, a leading, you know, heart doctor in the world most published, is coming around and looking at the childhood vaccine. You've got Dr. You know, Pierre Corey, you know, who's run hospital departments, is now investigating this um, You know, Paul Merrick, probably I think the living most published ICU doctor is now looking at vaccines, this autism connection. And I sat at uh, Ron Johnson's hearing with, you know, I don't know, at least 20 doctors. And I said to them before we started, I just want you to know the doctor that's not here is the one that was here all by himself. And that's Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Finally, you're all coming together There is now this almost tidal wave of world-renowned professionals that are finally starting to look at this issue. Do you feel that? Are you aware of that? Definitely. I was on a stage with Paul Merrick the other day in Atlanta, I think it was, and he he sat. We sat down together. Great guy, lovely guy. He said a year ago, I thought you were insane, and now I know he's not. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that just crazy? I mean, and think about how sad that is. Or even even currently with what we're still going through, people like you know Dr. Jenkins and or is it Jenkins or Jennings, the, the people that early on came out and were honest about this and just cited what were even then provable facts. And I don't mean like disputed facts. I mean like citing that there were hospitals were getting more money for giving COVID injections. That's a static reality. It's it's based on insurance, and yet he got d- attacked for it. The point that Andrew Wakefield will never get back truly what he lost from from telling the truth about these injections about autism. And, and it's just, it's amazing how long it takes some people, even as we can ho- see in some cases, good people, honest people that just still weren't able to see it or for some reason wouldn't allow themselves to see it. It, it just, it's amazing how obvious it all is. And this applies to every conversation we're having. I just think it's important that we capitalize on this awareness, look to people like Wakefield and others that were screaming and waving their hands at a time when nobody wanted to hear them and, and, and listen to what they were saying then and think about these longer topics tying in with what we're dealing with today. Because there's, there's a very constant agenda to keep you fixated on the one thing. And I don't even just mean like the topic of Gaza, Israel, or, you know, it's about fixating on whatever the current, I'll just leave it like broad. Whatever that embody, whatever that you envision in your mind when I say that, like, I think we all feel that there's one direction, and we could just make it as simple as the focus on the current foreign policy discussion. But we have a tendency to be driven into that. We focus on what we're presented with, and we omit and forget other things. And look, I myself have focused aggressively on this topic because I think it's very important. But as you can tell, I've gone out of my way because I think it's important that we don't lose sight of these other conversations. Again, as I just said, I had a great interview today with Dr. Uh, Ahmed Malik, I said his name wrong earlier, about his process through this, exactly this, him being penalized, losing his entire practice because he told the truth. And it's just, it's amazing that even as we all see that, we get driven into the next thing and we kind of lose sight of what that really was. So we need to try to maintain that awareness. And quite frankly, I I think I'm speaking to the minority when I say that. I think I, I I truly believe, as you know, you've heard me say for years that that has that has long passed. That's why it's so crazy right now. That's why it's so aggressive and so clumsy and so desperate because they know you see them, and that's just one small choice, one small movement or protest away from them ending up in jail. They know that and terrifies them. The truth is, it's always your right, though, isn't it? The whole, you know, should we decide, kind of paraphrasing, that the government's no longer acting in our interest, that we can alter or abolish it? 
Yeah, it is, it is the Constitution, the very Constitution they're actively trying to undermine at every possible step for reasons just like that. So find the courage to stand up for what you believe in, guys. It's a, the, one of the most important times in my lifetime that I can see that being, I mean, it's always important. But now more than ever, finding that courage to stand up, you know, usually at your expense and stand up for what's right. The right thing to do is usually not the easy thing to do. So follow us in that path and everybody else out there who is trying to do the right thing and even and often sometimes making mistakes. We all do. But we will continue to do everything we believe to be right with your support. So if you'd like to continue supporting us down below, there's plenty of ways to do so. But really, always, always just sharing the work is important, guys. And the one thing that I always think that I always reflect on, and I, you know, I, I try to avoid always being so, you know, it's just who I am, as you guys know, hard on my sleeve. But I don't. I just don't. I don't want to always end with some kind of touchy feely point. But I think that it's important for you guys to understand how how important all of this is to me, and how you guys have changed people's lives. Our community, the letters I get, the information, people saying, you know, that the community itself, just my shows, you know, one of the people they've talked to, you know, they've that they have found this community, that they've they've found the courage to see beyond it, that they've saved other people's lives and their family, you know, that, that it's powerful. What we're doing is important. And that I believe in it. And I think you guys believe in it as well. And I think what we need to lean into is that more than anything. And I don't mean that in a financial way, like just believing in what we're trying to do and trying to grow this in a way that will affect those around us in an objective, nonpartisan way. And I think that's just so incredibly important. And I see it changing. I was just speaking with Pasta actually the other day, and I know he's working on some new projects and we're going to be working with him in the future on some election stuff. And, you know, just someone, he's got such a good heart. You know, he really believes in what he's doing and he cares. And I just, I, we were talking about that exact point. In, in seeing this spread, I mean, that starts with you guys. There's so many content creators out there that, that don't care. They're doing this to make money. And I, I'm not going to begrudge somebody out there making a business, but the standing up, acting like this, it's the whole thing I say about the government, acting like they're the altruistic one while doing the bad thing. But I think what's important is that, one, you support the people that you believe are being honest in all of this, but that there's so many people out there trying to grift for what you have. And that's really just your attention to start and doing so to keep you invested in the very thing that undermines everything you believe in. And it really doesn't take that much to see it. And let's spread that. So those people either stop or are forced to change and pretend to be better, like to, to be good. Like we said, the government does, right? They pretend to be good because they know you want good. So maybe we can just at least force these people that are bad to act good at the very least, but kind of joking at the, at the end of the point, really, I think just, you know, Hey, I guess we'll end with the classic statement that is super overused that I used to say as a tagline, be the change, which really comes from the larger sentiment from Gandhi or from, uh, from the, wait, now I'm conflating whether that was Gandhi or Dalai Lama. <laughs> That's funny. I haven't thought about that in a while. In any case, the point is the real statement I think was, anyway, it comes, it means if we change the tendencies within ourselves, the tendencies in the world will also change. It's as simple as that be better. I love you all. As always, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. From the president's office in the White House in Washington, D.C., we present an address by the president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower. In holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. 